cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, here we go. Welcome to episode 196 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, August the 19th, 2023. My name is Jeremy Lee. I would like to thank everybody who joined us last Saturday. Our guests were the new team from the National the, the National Management Promotions team. We had a great episode. Check that out on the YouTube channel. Tons of information came through there. Next week on the show, next Saturday, we have Matthew Billman from GM10 will be joining us for Sports Cards Live. want to thank all sponsors and partners, but please join over 400,000 people who have already downloaded the Center Stage app across both iOS and Android for quick comps and card management features. Their app is the fastest and most accurate at card shows or at home to help you price your cards. You can build, organize, and share your collections with your friends and find other collectors to follow using their social sharing features. They have several grading partnerships, so check out their Instagram account and join me in supporting the great team they have there and the innovation they are undertaking. That is Center Stage app. You can see it on the ticker right now. Also, use protection, everybody. Practice safe swaps. Veriswap is an app and middleman service that lets you securely trade cards through the mail. Every transaction up to $1 million is fully insured by their guarantee. To use Veriswap, you upload your inventory, you can make trade, partial trade, or full cash offers to other traders. There are thousands already on the platform. Check them out on iOS and Android. And as part of a special offer, your first trade on Veriswap is only $1. There's a referral link in the video description below for your convenience. Leighton Sheldon of Just Collect and Vintage Breaks will be joining us for the Vintage Spotlight in about a half an hour. Be sure to check out just Collect and Vintage Breaks, and also check out HobbyNewsDaily.com. Your daily dose of, dose of hobby news and entertaining content is a collaboration of various content creators and original writers. And finally, Tag Grading, the Discord server and Facebook, Facebook groups are both live, very active. So join other hobbyists who are chatting, buying, selling, trading, tag slabs, sharing pictures, talking shop, and connecting with other hobbyists who like transparent, reproducible, consistent and accurate grading go to taggrading.com the community tab to join either community you'll find out first about tag grading drops flash drops tag will be grading on site at the burbank show at the very end of this month so come on by get ready to have your mind blown when you see what the future of grading looks like all right thank you to everybody for joining all loyal all loyal viewers listeners if you're not yet subscribed to this youtube channel Sports Cards Live, please take a moment and do so. As always tonight, your comments and your questions are in play. So let's get to it. Tonight's guest started in the hobby in the 1980s, focusing on 1986 tops and specifically Dwight Gooden. Because he was so focused on Dwight Gooden, he did not get himself a 1986 Fleer Michael Jordan rookie card, if we're still calling it a rookie card. His favorite teams are the St. Louis Cardinals, the Chicago Bulls, and the Chicago Bears. His favorite athlete of all time is Michael Jordan. Not quite good, and we might have to ask him about that. He's originally from the suburbs of Chicago, currently hailing from just outside St. Louis. Let's bring him out. 
Paul Lesko. Welcome back. Welcome back to Sports Cards Live, my friend. How are you? No, thanks for having me back on, Jeremy. And I, I got to say, it's been a little bit, and I really do like your intro music there. Is that you freestyling it a bit? or? Uh, uh, <laughs> thank Everybody can thank me that it's not me singing. Uh, that You know, that is actually a friend of mine in the hobby. His name is Sean Cates. He goes by Victory Investments on Instagram, and uh, he, he's a great hobbyist. And he's got some rapping skills, some lyric skills. He he wrote he wrote it, he performed it, uh, he did it all. So I'll have to add it to my workout list. <laughs> yeah, sports cards lifestyle. Yeah, there you go. Well, Paul, it's uh, listen. As you said, it's been a bit. You this is your third time coming on with me. You were on back in June of 2020, one of my first 30, 35 shows, and then you came back in March of 2021. We were on pace for once a year, and now over two years have gone by that you've been on. So it's uh, it's good to have you back. Although I feel like we're in touch, we communicate. I see you with the odd show, so it's not like we haven't seen each other, but you haven't been on for a while. So welcome back. No, thanks for having me back. I I, I really enjoy being on your show. I mean, it's just it's the quickest two hours ever. Yeah, <laughs> and let's see if we go two hours. We're already we're already packed in the in the audience. So welcome everybody to the show. Uh, it's good to have everybody there. And of course, Paul. Paul is mostly active on Twitter, everyone. Not as active on Instagram. You can see his Twitter handle is right on the screen, Paul underscore Lesko. So if you're not yet following him on Twitter, give him a follow because everything that we talk about tonight, all the different cases we talk about tonight, he will be continuing to report on through his Instagram platform, uh, probably starting you know, on Monday again as new news comes up and makes its way through. So uh, before we get into it, Paul, let's just say hello. We got we got Michael Hamm in the house. He's got his popcorn ready for the show. Jeff McMahon, Collectors Dream Orlando, Philly Joe, West Texas. Good to see you. Perk is here. Get Good Dad is here. Mookie Chilson. Will this be a billable hour with Paul Lesko? Hopefully, uh, too. Hopefully, too. Hopefully, too. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, 90s auctions in the house. Uh, that's Josh. Says, finally, lawyers getting recognition in our hobby. Mark Santucci, good to see you. Frank Estella. My buddy Ralphie, also Stomatis in the house. Good to see you, Ralph. Stukes is here. Good to see you, Stukes. Joe Perot, Jake Dahl, Colin Murray. Welcome, everybody. So I did just see you at the National, Paul. Uh, that was pretty nice. And you actually asked me or offered me if I'd like to sign your jersey. What was going on there? Tell us about that and maybe show us this jersey if you have it handy. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, uh, I've been to uh, quite a few nationals and uh, I like, and I, I always tell people, you know, I like the best thing about the hobby is truly the people. It's, I spend most of the time at uh, any convention I'm at just talking to the people rather than uh, actually going to the tables. And I've always, you know, asked people, if you see me, just approach me, you know, it, it's fine. You know, I, I want to interact with people and it's kind of hard when you're stuck, you know, in a, a convention center, you know, which is rather big with lots of other people, you know, it, it's difficult to identify people and I'm not a name tag person and I don't think a, a name tag would actually work. So what I did is uh, I got a Jersey made and uh, you know, says hobby lawyer on the back. And I'm like, people have to recognize me for that. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, if, if it says hobby lawyer, it's probably me. So uh, my wife then came up with the idea. She's like, well, while you're there, you should have people sign it. 
And I'm like, that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so, so I went around and uh, tried to get as uh, many people uh, uh, to talk to me in the first place. But then after that, just to get anybody I can to sign. And thank you again for for signing. And it was just, it was, it was a great uh, way to meet as many people as possible. And it's it, it's always fun when somebody starts yelling out of nowhere. Just goes, Paul, let's go. Just starts yelling. You're like, okay, yeah, you know. It's my my moment where I kind of felt like an athlete. <laughs> and it's kind of neat because like on Twitter, you're mostly just text. There's, there's really no audio, there's no video yet. People still recognized you. I mean, that's, that's impressive. Uh, explain that. Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with it saying hobby lawyer on the back, <laughs> but, but, but I do do uh, uh, quite a few uh, podcasts. Uh, so that, that, that might help out there. Uh, I think the picture that I have for Twitter is probably four or five, maybe six years old. So, you know, it's, I'm just lucky that people actually do uh, know who I am. Did you pick up any cards at the National Ball? I did not. I was horrible this time. I, uh, you know, my goal was to uh, look for uh, a 1941 uh, Johnny Mize card, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. And then I was uh, also uh, looking for uh, low grade 1986 uh, MJ uh, Fleer. Uh, cards, but uh, I struck out and it's fine. Uh, you know, it was, I, even though I didn't get any cards, I did talk to so many people and it was, it was, a, it was probably my favorite national I've had so far. I think a lot of people are, are feeling that exact same way. Why are you looking for a low grade 86 Fleer? Are you still trying to make up for that? The young boy in the eighties who was chasing Dwight Gooden, but couldn't find, didn't, didn't have the foresight to pick up a Jordan back then. Yeah, at, at least that's that's part of it. Uh, I mean, it's one of those uh, quintessential cards uh, for the hobby, but it's also it's one of the most counterfeited cards. There's actually quite a few lawsuits that are out there that have to do with the 86 Jordan or counterfeits made thereof or even counterfeit slabs that are uh, made with uh, the uh, Jordan in there. And part of my collection, I collect cards that have legal issues or that are involved in lawsuits. And I like to put cards side by side. And I have quite a few counterfeit uh, 86 Jordans that, you know, whenever one pops up in a lawsuit, I have to go frequent their eBay store and get one. So I have a souvenir. I thought, you know, it looks pretty funny if people come into my office and they see, you know, look at, wow, you've got a lot of 86 Fleer Jordans. And I have to disclaim it. No, those are all counterfeit. It would be nice to have an actual one next to it to, to complement the collection. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, 12-year-old me really collected incorrectly. And I, thankfully, I've continued doing that for the next, you know, 39 years since then. But. <laughs> Never learned the last one, huh? You haven't learned your lesson yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> the nice, you know what, though? I think it'd be cool to have an actual or like a legitimate copy because when you do show your collection to friends, colleagues, whoever, and you explain how you collect and they kind of look at you like, never never mind that you're collecting cards like a lot of us do. And people, it's become more mainstream. So it's not like this so much anymore. But then if you tell them your angle, they might really, it's, it's a very interesting angle. It would be cool to be able to show them like, here's the counterfeits, here's the real, the real copy. Like, can you tell any differences? Can you identify what's different between, between these two pictures? And I think I think it would, it would be good, a good card for you to have there too. So I like to hear that you're trying to find one. Yeah, no, and uh, I, and the, the story I have from the national about it is I went, you know, I saw there were a lot of Jordans that were there, but there were PSA eights, PSA nines, PSA tens, you know, rather high grade, 
And that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a one or a two. So I actually uh, was by a booth and the, and the lowest I saw was a PSA six. So I'm like, okay, hey, uh, you know, I see you got a PSA six, you know, any chance you got like a PSA one, PSA two? And he laughed and he goes, well, it's kind of funny that you say that because a 12 year old about an hour ago asked if I had a PSA one or two Jordan. So, uh, you know, I didn't, but he's ahead of you. So if there is one here, he's going to get it first. Right. <laughs> he's hunting, he's hunting heavy for it. All right. Well, let's, let, we're going to dive into it to a few of these, uh, these ongoing cases. Let's say hello to D Perez in the house, foul five ball. Jeremy, we'll see you in Anaheim in a few weeks. Not even a few weeks. It's a week and a half now until the Burbank show. Decoy cards says a coworker of mine would go to the same annual race and buy that year's t-shirt. Have anyone and everyone sign it over the weekend. Very cool idea. Jake Dahl thinks it's an interesting collection you have. Mark Santucci, 86 Jordan are always going to be in good condition because there were supplies out at that time. Yeah, I mean, some supplies. I mean, that's like at the beginning of Penny Sleeves, if I remember. Yeah. Uh, 1986 Fleer Jordan is my favorite card like you, Paul. MJ is my favorite player. If you're watching on Facebook and your name comes up like this, go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook and hit the big blue button and we'll see your name. Mookie Chilson says, Paul, your analysis on Twitter is great. I love reading it. But if you ever decided to record your analysis and post to YouTube, it would be devoured. Ever think of starting a YouTube channel? You know, I, I, I've kicked around the idea, but uh, as a lawyer, unfortunately, your time disappears from you and, you know, your 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 time is, you know, what you bill for. <laughs> so it's maybe something in the future. I would I think it would be pretty fun to do. But, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot more that would have to happen before I could do that. Well, I have the perfect name for it. If you can, I can't tell you because I already told I already told another lawyer earlier today what you could call it if you were to to do something even together. But I told him he can tell you. He can tell I'll, you the name. I'll race you to the trademark office and we'll see who gets it first. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. You can have it. It's all yours. It's all yours. Perfect. Dan's Vintage Baseball says, hey, Jeremy and Paul, longtime viewer, first time chat. Love to see that. Welcome, Dan. Lots of lawyers in the hobby, including me. That's the thing, right? We come from everywhere in this hobby. Everywhere. Clay Phillips, good evening to you. We got David Owens with us. Good to see you, Dave. Nick Chen, can't wait to learn more on this topic. And Lapper in the house. Aaron, good to see you as well, buddy. All right. So let's jump in. Listen, last time, the last time I had a, a, an episode that covered any sort of litigation was when I had Jason Moshera on, the president of Upper Deck, just about, I don't know, six weeks ago, maybe two months ago now. And we talked about the lawsuit that, that Upper Deck launched against uh, Ravensburger, Robinsberger, which I'm not comfortable yet saying, but if that's what it is, Robinsberger, who uh, who created the Disney Lorcana trading card game. Meanwhile, Upper Deck had the uh, something uh, Rush of Icor was their game, and they claimed that uh, that Lorcana was based on their game. They had similar people working on them. Can you bring us up to date, up to speed? What's going on in the uh, and how did you like? The interview that I did with Jason talking about this topic. Yeah, and I'll I'll start there. Uh, I thought Jason did a uh, did an amazing job, uh, and I think it, you know it showed the uh, difficulty that Upper Deck uh, you know had you know making a decision to sue uh, Robinsberger and uh, Andrew Miller. So um, so really, you know, the lawsuit uh, just. To, quickly recap about it. Uh, Robinsberger released, and I think Friday was the big release day, uh, their uh, Lorcana uh, 
trading uh, trading card game. And it is a partnership with Disney. So part of the reason I think there's such a rabid following for Lorcana is because it utilizes the Disney IP. Uh, lots of people are excited. There were sellouts. Uh, you know, it, it, everyone's pretty excited about this product. So Upper Deck, uh, a couple months ago, brought a lawsuit against Robinsberger and Miller, alleging that uh, Miller used to uh, consult with Upper Deck, and he was retained, allegedly, to create this game called Rush of Icor. And apparently, uh, allegedly, Miller worked uh, with Upper Deck for, uh, a few, uh, for quite a while, but then left and went to Robinsberger. And as Upper Deck tells the story, that uh, allegedly he took the game mechanics from that they developed at uh, uh, at Upper Deck, which were their trade secrets, used those uh, for uh, Lorcana, and that's what gave rise to the concern. Basically, that Lorcana is going to get to the market, and even though allegedly Rush of Icor was created first, it would look like it's a copy of uh, Lorcana. So it was a lawsuit that was brought to basically, you know, first of all, the lawsuit said uh, said that it wanted to stop the release of Lorcana, which obviously didn't happen. Uh, not not because, you know, Upper Deck was in the wrong, but because Upper Deck didn't take the steps necessary to shut down uh, a product before uh, before its release. Um, but that's, you know, that was the whole start of the case. And it looked difficult for uh, Upper Deck to, you know, kind of justify itself because Disney, uh, everybody loves Disney. It's got a rabid following. So there was a lot of people that had animosity towards them. But Jason did a very good job, I thought, walking through the analysis of, you know, it's kind of a damned if I do, damned if I don't situation. It's, you know, if we do nothing about this, then we look like we're the copiers when we uh, actually are the people who came up with this. And if I do do something, I get the wrath of rabid TCG fans and, you know, the Disney community. So, you know, it's a difficult uh, line that he had to walk for. Uh, since the lawsuit, uh, where we are is it, it's we're still in the phase of trying to figure out where is this case going to go forward and how much of it will go forward. Upper Deck filed in state court in California. Uh, Robinsberger quickly moved the case to federal court in California. And when they got there, they moved to dismiss the case and also uh, said that they're going to try and move the case to Seattle. They're trying to say that because their office is in Seattle and because uh, allegedly that's where uh, Miller, the game designer, lives, that that is the only place in the entire country, apparently, where this lawsuit can take place. Um, I don't think that argument's going to go very well, uh, but that's going to be the first battles that we have. They're trying to take out some of Upper Deck's claims and they're trying to move the case. And before we can get into the meat of this case to see who was right, who was wrong and what actually happened, this needs to be decided first. Let me ask, what, you know, you said that Upper Deck or, or the reason Lorcana was released this past Friday, or maybe one of the reasons that it was able to be released was because Upper Deck didn't take proper steps to stop it from happening. So why would Upper Deck file this lawsuit and then not follow up and take the steps towards what, what I'm thinking would have been their ultimate goal to stop the release of Lorcana, get Rush of Icor to market first, possibly, and, you know, first to market advantages uh, or are they just trying to do what you say and just position themselves for in the future, not looking like a, like the copycat? Yeah, it's it's difficult to tell. Uh, I I am mainly a plaintiff's attorney. That's what I what I do. I would have if I said I was going to file a what, what's called what they should have filed is a preliminary a motion for a preliminary injunction. If I say that in my complaint, I'm going to follow through with that. 
So that, you know, the fact that they said it made me think that they might file it, but it, it's a tough one to win because basically you're, you're telling the judge, Hey, even though we haven't had discovery, even though we haven't had a trial rule in our favor and shut down their product line, it's very, very difficult to do. So if you think it's a 50, 50 case, you, you shouldn't file for a preliminary injunction because you're going to lose. You need to have about like an 80% chance of, of winning the case. And sometimes you'll lose not just because, you know, your case isn't strong, but most people lose because they're not suffering what's called irreparable harm. And it's the legal term is irreparable harm, which basically means money won't make you whole. So, you know, their upper deck's position was, hey, we're going to look like we're copying them. So that is, you know, some type of irreparable harm that really can't be fixed or can it? I mean, is this, you know, one of those things where, you know, if Upper Deck does win their lawsuit, isn't that enough of a message out there that Upper Deck did come first and money makes a lot of things right? So it could have been kind of, you know, one of three things, either Upper Deck thought its case wasn't as strong, which I don't think that's the issue. Maybe they thought that, well, the judge might say money will make us whole if that's how it's going to work why even file this motion or number three is like what you said this is a you know not just a legal battle but it's kind of a pr battle that upper deck has to win uh you know if they win and they got this product off the market and their product doesn't come out for another year you're gonna have a lot of very angry uh lorcana fans that are out there so you know maybe they made the right choice the litigator in me wanted to see uh, a preliminary injunction motion i wanted to see an early fight uh but you know it wasn't to be did you want to see that early fight just like for the sport of it or or did you were you looking to see like what would the what precedent would come out of this or what direction would it go it, you know it's i think there's a little bit of precedent but more so because i want to we're really not going to get into the deep goings-ons in this case for months for i mean you know six seven eight nine months we're not going to get actual hints about what was actually allegedly taken from upper deck what was actually used how the game mechanics are similar if there is a motion for preliminary injunction, everybody puts their cards on the table right off the bat. And so we would know almost every issue that's going on in the case. So it's more of the competition. But there's also a little bit of precedent that could be set here because, you know, there's another case we'll talk about later between uh, Panini and Fanatics, where Panini is alleging that Fanatics uh, stole some of Panini's employees and they stole some trade secrets. So you kind of have these two cases ongoing right now where former people that work for one company went to another company and now there's allegations of trade secret theft, basically trade secret theft. So where's the line in the sand? And that's, you know, kind of something that's important for going, you know, for what would happen in the future for people leaving. And, you know, there's you know, not very many employers in this market. So if you've done well for game design uh, for TCGs, you know, at some point, you know, not every game's gonna be hundred percent original. How much can you borrow? How much, you know, it, it, would, it would be an interesting, uh, I think it'd be interesting. It wouldn't necessarily be precedential, but it would help give some people a little bit more, you know, safety when they leave or what not to do before they leave an employer. Is there any benefit to Upper Deck to let Robinsberger release Lorcana, generate revenue and profits from it, and then come back, you know, follow up this, this original claim with another one that states something like, you know, because you used our mechanics, our designer, we can prove this. Now we, now we are entitled to a cut of your profit or, or revenue therefrom. Is that a potential strategy here that they might be employing? 
It could be. Uh, it, I mean, that, that, that strategy would, you know, you, you see that strategy sometimes where, hey, let's let it get released. Let's let them make a lot of money and then let's take their money from them. <laughs> you know, part of what Upper Deck is asking for is uh, the profits uh, from that. So the more profits that uh, Robinsberger gets, the more money Upper Deck uh, receives. Um, I think here, you know, a, a part of the lawsuit's about saving face and making sure that they're known as the first, you know, that Rush of Icor is the first, even though it's the second released uh, product that's out there. So I don't know if that would be the full motivation or maybe even any of the motivation. Um, it's difficult to tell. I don't think it's all about money. I've heard some people speculate it's all about money. I think it's, it's I think it's more complicated than that. Um, I think it was really about winning a preliminary injunction is very hard. So, you know, let's not do it. And, and if you do win a preliminary injunction, you typically have to post a bond. Uh, and sometimes the bond will be, you know, if, if they're, I, I don't know how much money this is going to make, but if they were, to, you know, if Robinsberger is going to make $20 million, $30 million from this, the bond may be 20 or $30 million. So be careful what you ask for, because you may have to post a $20 million bond just in case you're wrong. Huh, okay. Yeah, that. That would be a hit to cash flow. I would have yeah, to say. It, it really would. Yeah. I try explaining that one. <laughs> and so now that now that Lorcana was released last Friday, and I'm seeing all sorts of content on it on social media, really just, you know, people talking about it. How has the response and I'm assuming that you're following it because of the case and just all the you know, all your your social media activity. How has the TCG community responded to it? Is it as great as everybody thought it was going to be? I haven't followed any sales on the secondary market is this product something that that speculators are are, are banking on is are are we seeing thousand ten thousand hundred thousand dollar cards out of this product yet anything you know about what's happened since friday yeah it's 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 been selling out and i've seen that there are some uh, actual fans of the game that are complaining that uh, prices are uh you know they're, they're alleging price gouging because it's uh, being sold above MSRP, but it's, you know, welcome to the trading card community. It's <laughs> how it's going to happen. If there's demand, people are going to make money off it. So there, there actually is uh, a quite a bit of demand on it. Uh, uh, I, I think the uh, cards that are worth the most or that are the most desired were actually the cards that were handed out at, uh, uh, at, at, at a Disney event, D23. Uh, beforehand. There's uh, six cards that were promos that were handed out back then. Those are selling fairly well. Those are selling consistently if they're graded for over $1,000. So there is some uh, demand that's out there. But um, but I, I think, you know, I haven't seen very many complaints. I've seen people wondering about supplies or enough supply for everybody. Uh, but uh, I don't think this lawsuit's slowed anything down whatsoever. You say promo cards, uh memories of the late 80s early 90s and the the promo the promo card hype uh and excitement back then there's i guess maybe 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 it's time for that to be revived in the tcg world although i'm sure it's already been there so i don't follow tcg too closely uh bob's big boy said earlier part of the value of the 86 fleer jordan is the fact that fleer had great execution in regards to photography the jordan base rookie the magic johnson the kareem sticker had iconic Photos, he goes on to say, the Star Company photography left a lot to be desired. Their dunk contest cards, the lone exception. Then he's a he has a question for you here, Paul. What is your opinion on the Star Company basketball cards? There have been lawsuits involving NBA licensing violations, and Discovery may have unearthed a lot of the important details. PSA is grading Star Company cards. And interestingly, Steve Taft, who is the, the world's preeminent expert on Star Company cards, he was a, a, a distributor for them, I believe, back in the 80s, was that I actually met him at the National, very nice man, uh, 
very happy to talk about star cards just did an interview or jeff wilson uh the sports card investor just released an interview the other day that he did with steve taft at the national so two questions for you paul with that and bob's big boys question is number one did you watch that interview and then number two can you respond to bob's big boy I, I I did not see the interview, and actually, I'm not very interested in the star cards because you know my collection is born out of uh, you know lawsuits that, that I see that I've seen out there. If there are star card lawsuits uh, that are out there, I'd love to see them. Uh, but uh, you know, because the '86 Fleer is uh, so counterfeited and it's so desirable, uh, you know, it's that, that that's really where my love is uh, for, for the card. Well, now that we're talking, we have a really good segue into the vintage spotlight with Leighton Sheldon, who's come to the back room. So I'm going to bring him out in just a second. But one of the things um, that that I'm hoping we can talk about with Leighton uh, is around, you know, he's a he's a professional baseball card treasure hunter. It 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 leaks into basketball and football, even some even some Superman. He had a beautiful Superman card at his table at the National. But I, I'm hoping that uh, that the two of you can we can just have some 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 discussion here about that so uh and i also want to welcome the professor to the stream and so uh oh no that's not Leighton. let's bring Leighton on right now Leighton, welcome back buddy how are you good how are you guys thanks for having me. hey paul how are you doing good doing good so nice you guys you guys know each other you guys have uh crossed paths before but um i thought we could talk a bit about you know paul you mentioned earlier that you are looking for a real Michael Jordan to go with your counterfeit Michael Jordan cards. And uh, there's also the issue around fake slabs. So uh, I'm gonna open the floor to you, Paul, just to pose whatever you were thinking to Leighton so we can we can get into this a little bit. I mean, I think the, the first question, and I saw uh, this went around Twitter a little bit earlier uh, this week, but you know, what really is the definition of vintage? Because it, it's getting scary. I mean, as someone who is collecting the 80s, I see a lot of people saying cards from the 80s are vintage, which means I'm older than vintage, and I don't want to think of myself that way. So, I mean, really, I mean, what is your uh, opinion of what is vintage? Where's the line in the sand drawn, or is it a moving line? Uh, Paul, it's a great question, and we've actually discussed it, I think, on occasion before, not just on here, but, you know, throughout the hobby, and I think it really depends on your perspective, right, and your context. So for me, for example, like, I prefer tobacco, and to me, like, that's the best vintage, but does that mean that 1950s cards are not vintage? Certainly not, and for whatever it's worth, we're talking about the Michael Jordan rookie as we went into this, you know, particular segment here, a card from 1984 or 1986 is 35, 40 years old. So it's hard to say that those aren't vintage either. So it's just really a matter of, for example, like, hey, I collect vintage basketball from the 1950s. I collect vintage football from the 1970s. And Paul, I don't think like you or Jeremy would say, Leighton, you're wrong for saying vintage football is not from the 70s. It's only from the 50s. No, that's not true. Um, And so I really just, like I said, I think it depends on your context and your perspective of how you're looking at it. Yeah. I just want to jump in for a sec, Paul, because... The way I look at it is that, and I think a lot of people look quite simply that vintage is up until, say, 1980. A lot of baseball collectors feel 1980 is the last year of vintage, and then it changes in 81 when you have Fleer Donruss coming into the t- to dance along with Tops. So I, I understand that. But, Paul, to me, nothing really changed other than a couple new companies. Gum, wax, packs, the, the, the technology that it didn't really advance. Until 1989, when Upper Deck came in with new card stock, holograms, better photography, 
foil wraps. I look at that as 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 the start or the end of vintage, say 1988. Although I respect the baseball world saying 1980. So then I think to myself, well, maybe it's baseball is up until 1980, or maybe basketball, football, hockey are up until 88 or 89, something like that. So yeah, it's, it's an. I don't think I don't think we're going to get consensus on that. Just like we, we might not ever get consensus on what's the actual Michael Jordan rookie card. Is it the 84 star or the 86? Uh, back again to the 86 flare. But with that, I'll let you resume, Paul. Sorry. Yeah, no. And uh, you know, with the uh, 86 flare, you know, part of the reason I'm very interested in it is because there's a lot of lawsuits about it. And one of the lawsuits that recently came up uh, is actually a criminal action where there was somebody who was uh, counterfeiting PSA cases and selling counterfeit Jordans uh, that way. So, you know, how do collectors, you know, protect themselves from potentially uh, counterfeit PSA cases that are out there? Great question, Paul. And uh, at least what I would tell a client, a friend, uh, a fellow hobbyist, if they ask me on the record, off the record, and I would say, educate yourself. That's the first place to start, okay? So it doesn't matter, right? Because we all have different budgets. So Paul, for you, an expensive card might be $300. For Jeremy, an expensive card might be $3,000. For someone else, another expensive card might be $30,000. The reason why I'm bringing this up, it doesn't really matter what your budget is. No one wants to feel like they've been duped. So one of the ways to protect yourself is to understand, yes, not all tens are created equal. Not all PSA 8s or SGC 8s are created equal. But Paul, there is somewhat of a reasonable standard across the grades, across grading companies. So I myself, for example, I remember this card. I bought a Tito 6 Thai Cobb PSA 5.5 many years ago. I still have the card. But it was an old holder. I, even though I had the confidence it was okay, I said to this gentleman, if you want me to write you a big check for this card, I have one stipulation. We need to get it reholdered. He asked me why. I simply explained to him, I believed that the cards in the newer graded holders, call it the special security, the hologram light, whatever the, the situation is, I'd feel better for writing a five-figure plus check for your card. So that way, if and when it comes time for me to resell it, I'm going to have the confidence of the buyers who are looking at the card. And you know what the gentleman said? Late, I totally understand. I appreciate you being transparent with me. Keep in mind, Paul, he was able to take the card sell it to someone else, but I just called it the way I saw it. And so that card actually did cross. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is don't be afraid. If you're at a convention, right, if you're dealing with a fellow collector and Jeremy's your buddy and you're buying a PSA 8 of a Bobby Orr rookie, which I know Jeremy sold not that long ago uh, at the Toronto show, don't be afraid to say, you know, I want it to be reholdered in the current most um, state-of-the-art, if you will, PSA, SGC, Beckett, whoever your company is. And if someone says to you, oh, no, no, I'm not doing that, it's then up to you to decide. doesn't mean that they're trying to hurt you, mm -hmm. but keep in mind that if you're writing a big check for a card, this is what I would advise. And also go with your gut. So if you're looking at a PSA 10 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie, for example, because I know we just mentioned one, and the hologram on the back of that card is scratched, I don't care that PSA or SGC would say it's Jeb Mint. I would say pass. Don't buy that card. Good. Yeah. Now, right. my, the other thing I, I, I was concerned, it's, I follow lawsuits from all ages. And so one uh, car, and I, I collect cards that are involved in lawsuits. And one law, one card that I'm looking out there for is a, a 1951 Johnny Mize double play. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's one of the first recorded lawsuits in the hobby having to do with Johnny Mize. Uh, 1941, I'm sorry, it's the card nerd of me, but now you can go ahead, Paul. 
Oh, did I, did I, did I say 51? I meant 41. You said 51. I'm sorry. You don't oh, get man. Don't so you are familiar with it, but yeah. yeah but very this, familiar. Not this the is one of the, the cards. Yeah, this is one of the cards that uh, I've been looking for, and uh, I've been uh, trying to stake it out. But it's one of those ones where I don't feel confident in buying a card that's not graded uh, for something like this. Or, and I, I don't even care about the grades. I want it authenticated uh, more than anything else, especially since a card like this, which I believe is blank on the back. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those ones where, you know, so for someone like me, if I wanted to, you know, maybe take a step back from buying a card that was actually graded, or authenticated, is there a way I can confidently buy one that's not graded? I mean, the first thing I would say is experience. So, I mean, I buy big collections all the time, fairly regularly, of ungraded cards. But make no mistake, I bought a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle ungraded late last year in Tampa. The guy's looking at me like seven minutes in a row. I'm looking at it like, you know, this and that. I'm turning, I'm looking at the angle. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm making sure it's real. He's like, you know, how do you do that? I'm like, experience. You know, I, it's not a joke, right? I've handled 152 Tops Mickey Mantles. I've had fake ones. Uh, thankfully, most of them have been real. But, Paul, um, I always say this, and I think this is a great message for today, uh, today's show for Jeremy's folks who are watching. There's no reason to be a hero. So if you, for example, are buying a $10,000 card and you're worried it's not real and it's, and it's, it's raw and it costs 100 bucks, at least you know the most you can lose, Paul, is 100 bucks, Right. But you should go about it with that, I guess, kind of caution mm-hmm. and to understand that, you know, if you are taking a risk, just look at it as, hey, if this card gets authenticated, I might have a huge win. If it doesn't get authenticated, but I've only spent $100, my downside's $100 plus the grading. Um, but I also would tell collectors this and, and investors, if something is too good to be true, 95 to 99.5% of the time, it's usually too good to be true. No, and that's one of those funny things about uh, cards like that, where if I bought something that was raw, I might not want to know it was fake. So I'm going to keep it raw. (laughs) You know, I have, it's not the same thing, Paul, but if I get a card I really love, uh, more so on the vintage side, I know that if I don't get it graded and it's worth a lot, I won't sell it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a way to protect me from selling a card I really love because, you know, if it's authenticated and sells for whatever, 10, 20, 30% more, you know, I'm not going to leave that on the table, but if I don't have it slabbed, I won't sell. Yeah, no. My my big concern is I, I always put my cards up. I try to have a rotating display in my office so that when everyone comes in, I can explain the legal issues and everything. And I just don't want one day for somebody to come in and be like, oh, you're Mize. Oh, that's fake. <laughs> that's, you know, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> so there, there, totally was, there were two cards with Johnny Mize from, uh, from back then, Paul. And I'm just wondering, because you'd mentioned that this was like the first NIL type of issue that came up. And I'm curious from Layton, are, are you familiar? I'm going to bring them up again on the screen here. So we've got, we've got this card here and, and uh, thanks to Paul for sending me these images. So this is the first one with Ina Slaughter. And then there's this one here as well with uh, Dan Litweiler with Johnny Mize in the batting pose. I brought that up before because uh, Dan's vintage did, did make a point of saying that he has two calls cards in the 41 play ball set. There's also a batting card. I believe this this is probably that card that uh, Dan's vintage was, was mentioning. So question for you, Leighton, as as Paul mentioned, there was, as I think you believe, Paul, there was an NIL uh, lawsuit or, or something going on. What, what is your understanding, Paul? And then I'm curious if Leighton is aware of it. Yeah, this is 
one of the first initial lawsuits between 41 and the early 50s, you had a lot of lawsuits focused on actually hammering out what's now known as the right of publicity. And it's really the the one case that really hammered it out was, you know, it was called Haleon versus uh, Tops, but it's, it's really Bowman. Uh, is the one that actually uh, solidified it. But this, the, this Mize case, he did not give permission to uh, Gum Inc. to make his cards. And so it was the first known, at least court case that's reported, where you had somebody saying, hey, you have to get my permission to appear on cards. So it's the first card on the way to solidifying the right of publicity. And the cases that, that everybody in the world relies, or in the United States, that relies on for right of publicity actually started in baseball. It's interesting. So I don't know much about that particular card and that issue, but I'm curious, Paul, either in your research or from, you know, others, let's say in your field, you're certainly aware of the Tito Six Holmes Wagner. Have you ever dove in and saw anything or found anything as far as legal issues as to, you know, Honus Wagner going to the American Tobacco Company and saying, hey, I didn't give you permission. We didn't reach a deal. And this is why my card is pulled. I'm curious if you found anything definitive, you know, about that. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, contra- conflicting stories that are out there. The the best I saw was in a uh, it was a uh, law review article that mentioned that you know because there were people that were saying that Wagner wanted his cards pulled because he didn't want you know because he was anti tobacco when that's not true. He was a cigar smoker. You know, there's there's actually pictures of him cigars. But uh, the, the, what they really think now is that he didn't want his card associated with kids and smoking because there was such a demand for it. Uh, there's also rumors that there may have been a lawsuit or threats of a lawsuit. We don't know that. It may have just been a, you know, you've got, you know, that that the best, the greatest baseball player at the time saying, hey, get my card out of there. Everyone's going to listen to him. So it's it's one of those things where it's, it's almost an urban legend now. No one really knows what the answer is. And whoever can figure it out, find that one document that shows it. I think that's the one document you want to get that, you know, certified or authenticated. And that'll be at least worth to the lawyers out there. It'd be worth a lot of money. You know, Paul, it's a great point. But look how far our hobbies come. Things like an old American card catalog, where, for example, if you found the document that could point to what happened with the T206 Honus Wagner, I mean, those would be priceless to the hobby collecting community as it stands today. And I think that's just really a testament to how far our hobby and our industry has come. Yeah, and I, I like that business. I mean, I like the behind the scenes business actions that are going on. It, it just gives another, you know, besides having a, hey, here's a pretty card with a great player and here's how well he did that year. Well, here's the business behind this. Here's how this card almost looked and, or here's how it does look. And here's why there's not very many of them out there. Right on. Well, all right, Leighton, as always, every Saturday, it's great to have you. Vintage Spotlight with Leighton Sheldon, Just Collect. You guys can follow him on Instagram at Leighton underscore Sheldon and at Just underscore Collect. And it, and it, is it Vintage underscore Breaks or simply Vintage Breaks on, on Instagram, Leighton? Uh, it's Vintage.Breaks on Instagram. Vintage.Breaks. And uh, listen to his podcast, Trading Card Therapy. Anything else you'd like to shout out before you go, Leighton? I'm going to be going up to the Boston area next weekend on a vintage buy trip slash adventure. So stay tuned and follow me on social. And who knows what I'll be doing next Saturday's show from, Jeremy, but it'll be interesting. Oh, I can't wait, Leighton. All right, pal. Safe travels. We'll see you next Saturday. Thanks again for coming by. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. See you later. All right. Uh, Thanks, Leighton. All right. Paul, we're going to do some comments, and we're going to get into the next case. We're already we're already forty three minutes in, and uh, we we got we got to we got to make up some we got to make up some time here. Uh, Mark Santucci, oh, too late, Leighton's gone. Sorry, Mark. 
Uh, Cardboard Casino says anything pre-moon landing is vintage. Whether or not the moon landing actually happened is another conversation. <laughs> Love it. Tip of the mitt. Good to see you. Uh, cardboard casino, when it comes to liability on card deals that go bad, who absorbs more liability? The seller, the auction house, the grader, or the original owner dating back several transactions could get ugly. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot in that one comment right there, Paul, but anything you'd like to say about that? It's going to be very fact specific. It's you, you, you know, that's just too, you could write an entire book on that one, but you know, you need specific situations to, to see how it goes, but uh, I'm sure we'll have some, you know, potential cases that even touch on some of this. So, <laughs> okay, let's move forward. So most of us who are in this hobby, uh, we're pretty, it was pretty cool to see a mainstream TV show on Netflix, uh, called the golden touch with Ken golden or, or, um, I think, yeah, I think that's what it was called. And, um, I watched all five or six episodes, really, really enjoyed it. Happy to hear that it's been renewed for a second season. And I'm looking forward to watching that. However, amongst all that, there was a lawsuit filed against, I believe, Ken Golden and Netflix yep. related to the show, King of Collectibles. Can you tell us, Paul, a little bit about what's this case about and, and where are things standing now? Sure. So, uh, and, and like you, I really enjoyed the King of Collectibles. It was one of those shows where, again, you know, it, it's, did I like it because of the subject matter or did I like it because it's people that you see, you know, or talk to all the time on social media that you're like, oh yeah, now I can totally relate to what they do. But the uh, King of Collectibles was a big hit uh, for, for Netflix. And like you said, it got renewed for season two. Uh, before it got renewed, uh, there was a lawsuit filed by a, um, by this uh, individual named Peterson. And uh, the focus of the lawsuit was that apparently, uh, allegedly he said he worked with uh, Ken Golden and Golden Auctions previously in 2020 and put together a similar show, including a sizzle reel. And they actually provided a link to the sizzle reel so you could actually look at the show that they were putting together. And he accused Netflix and Golden of uh, copyright infringement. Uh, basically, you you know, we came up with this concept. You copied it. That's our show. You owe us money from it. Um, I, these are very difficult lawsuits for to win on this because copyright does not protect ideas. It only protects the expression of ideas. So you can't copyright the idea of a show following golden auctions. You can copyright a specific episode where maybe Ken talked to this person and they said this and this format and then this happened and you followed a logical script from there. You were actually getting a copyright on the episode, not the idea. This lawsuit, however, really focuses on the idea. And if you take it down to its basis point, it's basically saying if anybody makes uh, a reality TV show of golden auctions, they infringe our stuff. Um, because of that, I think it's a very difficult lawsuit for them uh, to win, and I, I, I don't think they will. And neither does Golden. Uh, they filed a motion to dismiss in that case, uh, basically focusing on those same issues. Uh, they, they raised some other issues, too. But the one that I think is going to win is you cannot copyright an idea, and this lawsuit is all about an idea. What, what is a motion? I mean, it sounds, I think I know what it is, but what is a motion to dismiss in layman's terms? Like, is it simply... This is BS. Throw this out, please, to the court, or is it something it, more than that? 
It, it, it really is. So there's when you're a lawyer looking at a lawsuit, there's three things you look at. You know, the, will it survive a motion to dismiss? Will it survive a motion for summary judgment? And will it survive trial? That's the three points that you look at. A motion to dismiss is basically saying there is no legal action that you can take against me. There is no legal basis for your lawsuit. Uh, if there's any facts that are in dispute, you will win. And the motion to dismiss will be denied and the case will continue. Uh, motions to dismiss happen as soon as a complaint's filed. Basically saying they have a legal cause of action that they say here, it does not apply to us. So it's a, a way to get an early win. Later on in the case, you move for summary judgment, meaning there is no facts in dispute. Yes, there's a legal potential legal cause, but all the facts go my way, not his way. So you should get rid of the case for that reason. So if you think about it, uh, the motion to dismiss is there's no basis for this lawsuit, no legal basis for the lawsuit. Motion for summary judgment is there's no factual basis for a lawsuit. And if it ultimately goes to a trial, there's facts on both sides. The jury needs to weigh the facts. That's that's the easiest way to look at those those three things. So if the case doesn't survive a motion to dismiss, like why would a lawyer even go through that process? Why, why would you advise your client to do it? Is this just a Hail Mary or is it just for publicity or is it for to, to inflict bad publicity on the other on the counterparty? Like wh why would you? Like here you are saying that this is you now it's probably not going to go. Would you would you make an attempt at it yourself uh, for this? No, uh, I, I you know, sometimes you have lawyers view the law differently. Uh, sometimes you have lawyers that are inexperienced in certain areas. And sometimes you have a let's say you have a 10 percent chance of winning a case, but it's a billion dollar case. Well, you know, maybe roll the dice and see what happens, because sometimes you squeak one past the uh the goalie there. But, um, you know, most times, uh, you know, motions to dismiss, sometimes valid cases are dismissed from on motions to dismiss. Uh, sometimes defense firms do a good job of making a sometimes, you know, viable cases look not good. So, you know, you see a motion to dismiss in every case, every case that's filed, you'll see a motion to dismiss. Uh, it's just how the games played. But uh, for this one, as a plaintiff's attorney, I would have passed on this case. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was asking. But yeah, you would have passed on it. Well, I'm glad to hear because I did enjoy those six episodes and uh, I'm looking forward to season two and hopefully several seasons. I mean, it's just, it's just it was good entertainment. So yeah. I'm looking forward to more of that. All right, let's move on to the next one. Let's, let's get into the big one now. The big, the big one that's been making its ways through, through hobby content and, and uh, discussions and conversations out there. And that is Panini versus Fanatics. Fanatics versus Panini. I think you mentioned to me it's actually three lawsuits. So I'm going to sit back now, Paul, for I think a while and let, let you just explain what's going on here. And maybe, you know, in chronological order of what 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 lawsuits were filed first, second, third, if there are three of them and help us understand what's going on here. If you if you don't mind, please. Sure. And, and you're correct. It's, it's, it's actually three lawsuits. Uh, for, for now, it's actually three lawsuits. The uh, first lawsuit was filed in May, which is hard to believe. It was just, you know, three or four months ago, the first lawsuit was filed. But it was Panini alleged that Fanatics uh, stole 36 of their employees. And they did it, uh, obviously, uh, unlawfully, and they stole trade secrets. Uh, so it seemed like uh, this is, you know, this is the first case that uh, kicked it off, that Fanatics is, you know, going to jump into this field. They're going to get the NBA exclusive license. They're going to get the NFL exclusive licenses for both of those. They are going to, in essence, replace 
Panini in, in the market. So, uh, uh, Panini, so Panini is saying that, hey, Fanatics, you know, they unlawfully took our employees, uh, they took our trade secrets, um, and they should be held accountable for that. That lawsuit's been going on for a little bit right now. There's been allegations that some of the employees downloaded documents the day before they left and that those were all constituting trade secrets. And we'll, we'll see what happens with that case right now. A lot of it is just allegations. We haven't really gotten too far into the facts, but it's, it is an interesting one to follow. Then jump to two weeks ago. Uh, Panini filed what I think is probably the biggest lawsuit uh, in the hobby for at least the last 30, 40 years, filed an antitrust lawsuit against Fanatics, alleging that Fanatics, uh, once it gets uh, all three licenses for MLB, for NFL, for NBA, and the, uh, the players associations for each of those, that they will be an unlawful monopoly. And this is, I think, a big lawsuit because of what Panini's asking for. They're asking not only for money damages, but they're asking for an unwinding of what's happened in the hobby since 2020. Fanatics bought tops. Uh, they want that on. They want that unwound. They want Fanatics to divert, to actually divulge tops, so that tops becomes its own company. Uh, Fanatics also bought a uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, production companies that actually makes cards themselves. Panini's asking that that purchase also be unwound and that company get, you know, replaced back out too. So Panini is actually asking for a giant reset button where everybody's been wanting to see what Fanatics is going to do, wants to see Topps trademarks on NBA, on NFL, see some of these, you know, great products that we saw that we collected is young, you know, younger to come back. Uh, Panini doesn't want to see that and they want that to be reset. And then I thought that was the biggest lawsuit and it is the biggest lawsuit. And I thought we wouldn't see a response from Fanatics for a while, because typically when you're a defendant, you want the lawsuit to take as long as possible. You want to keep your position to yourself for as long as possible so that, you know, the other side can't prepare for it. But within less than a week, Fanatics then sued Panini. And they allege that there's unlawful competition going on in that there's uh, these lawsuits. They say they allege basically that these lawsuits are BS. And also that they we get a little peek behind the curtains that apparently fanatics was in talks with panini to have panini they were going to pay panini to end their exclusive licenses with the nba and nfl early so that fanatics could release these products their products in 2022 and 2023 and they and fanatics alleges they thought they had a deal the deal was you know contingent on looking at some uh, forecasts or some actual sales that were going to happen so they could figure out a, a final dollar price for for this. But apparently, from what Fanatics alleges, Panini just dragged their feet, did everything that they could, uh, allegedly, to hurt the deal or, or kill the deal or just drag it out forever. And in doing so, Fanatics alleges that it lost about $10 million it paid for lawyers' fees and due diligence and everything to get ready for uh, to launch these products, as well as potentially $200 million or more of sales that they would have had in 2022 and 2023 that they're not going to have now. So it's so from what started as, hey, you took some of our employees, became a, hey, here's an antitrust lawsuit, we're going to unwind this whole industry, to you owe us hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And so if you can imagine, there's like nuclear missiles flying from all the companies back at each other. And it's just, you know, for a lawyer like me, it's just it's amazing to watch stuff like this. It's just it's, it's so fun. <laughs> you know, we in the hobby are often impatient. How frustrated is the hobby going to get in terms of the timeline for the for anything coming to fruition with these lawsuits? Are we going to see any are we going to have closure on this? And then by the end of this year, next year, the year after, what do you what do you think the timeline for all this is? Well, I think there's there's two possibilities. One possibility is, are these actual lawsuits or are they 3D chess business negotiations? You know, was there actually a deal to be made and Panini wanted more money and Fanatics wouldn't give it to them? So Panini says, hey, we're going to sue you. You're going to have to pay your lawyers for these. You may as well just pay us. And then Fanatic says, well, we'll just pay our lawyers then and we'll fight you. So if these are actually 3D chess business negotiations taking place in the courts, we might see something end earlier than not. Now, if this is really, I hate you, I want the market undone, or you owe us hundreds of millions of dollars, you better pay us, these lawsuits are going to take a long time. Antitrust lawsuits are some of the longest, if not the longest uh, cases from beginning to end that are out there. Uh, typically, a complex case takes 18 months from beginning to end for your initial schedule. Antitrust cases pretty much start off at two years. And these cases aren't moving quickly already because they're filed in three separate courts. The first case uh, for the uh, alleged theft of employees that's filed in Texas. The antitrust case filed by Panini against Fanatics, that's filed in Florida. Then Fanatics case against Panini, that's filed in New York. And when you have three cases going on with some overlapping facts, you always have a risk of inconsistent decisions because judges are all people. They may see a similar issue and they may rule differently. So Fanatics actually filed a motion to transfer the Florida antitrust case up to New York. And so before we get into any of the merits of, of the case, we have to figure out where is the proper court to hear this. And it wouldn't surprise me if we didn't see a motion to transfer from Panini to move the New York case to Florida. So we're going to so if we're looking at two years as a fast antitrust case, we need to figure out what courts could even see it first before we even start that two year clock. And that's if they're not just going to if this isn't just a big chess game and they're going to figure out some sort of settlement between the two parties before yeah. then. Uh, I've got to bring up Mookie Chilson's question here. Hypothetically, Fanatics and Panini both asked Paul Lesko to sign on as co-counsel. Which side is Paul choosing and why? And you can plead the fifth here and not respond if you don't want to for any reason. But let's see. I think you, uh, I don't know. Will you answer this? Well, I think actually I'll, I'll, I'm going to do the great attorney thing. I'm going to answer my own question rather than this one. And uh, so what I'll, what I'll do is, you know, actually it would be nice to have somebody, an independent party like me or somebody else, a mediator, sit down with everybody and say, hey, what are your goals? You know, how much of this is real? How much of this, you know, because, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, it's not just your companies that are, you know, interested in this because it affects them. The, this affects the entire hobby. It affects every collector that's out there. So is there a way to streamline a deal? And uh, so in that case, you know, if if a mediator is willing to be paid by both sides, you don't necessarily have to pick someone to win. You just drive everybody towards a resolution that both sides don't like, but is probably the correct solution. So 
How, how's that to, to, to answer, but not answer the question? <laughs> I want to ask. I want to ask you a question about antitrust and monopoly. So you know, I'm not a lawyer. I took a commercial law course in my business honors degree, but I'm I'm certainly not a lawyer. But I don't I don't see fanatics being a monopoly. And correct me if I'm wrong, but to me, you know, they have entered into ver various. Uh, verticals within the sports card memorabilia industry. They've got printing now. They've got licenses to produce the cards and the brands. Uh, they've got the marketplace. They've got uh, other others as well. They've acquired a whole bunch of betting, which isn't which is tertiary, but you know, not really right in there with 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 what we're seeing here. Um, vaulting through PWCC, people are speculating they're going to acquire a grading company. So. When I look at fanatics, I look at them as a conglomerate. I don't necessarily look at it as a monopoly because there is there is competition in each of those verticals or each of those those different businesses that I just mentioned. There's even there's even competition in the ability to produce baseball cards. Leaf trading cards makes cards. Sure, they're unlicensed, but the only thing that in my from what I can see, the only thing that that fanatics really has a monopoly on is the ability to put team logos on sports cards because leap can make sports cards so there's competition in grading there's competition which they don't even have yet competition there's tons of marketplaces there's other printing facilities uh and, and whatever other business they, they've acquired I'm, i know i'm forgetting one right now but do you can, did I, is there one that i'm that i didn't mention that you're thinking of not okay. really. I mean, I, I, I'm, and it's funny because you're, you're kind of hitting to the point too, because you know it, there is, you know, what is the market? Because in order to find, be found, uh, you know, to be uh, an unlawful monopoly, the market has to be defined. And here, the market that they're, you know, that Panini's alleging is actually they're alleging there's six, six or more markets, and uh, each of the markets are it's NF, it's like NFL cards, high and low end. NBA cards, high and low end. Uh, and is that the proper way to look at the market? Because it doesn't seem like it is because is the market also all trading cards? Is hockey cards need to be included in there? Do trading card games need to be included in there? Because typically, you know, I'm one of those people that does buy some TCG stuff. If I buy a TCG product, I might not be buying a baseball product. So they do internally compete. So you have to figure out what is the market? And I'll be tipping my cards here for the last question about who I think, you know, who I think will win. But um, really, we have two issues, intellectual property holders. And that's what the NBA, NFL uh, and um, MLB are assigning to fanatics is their intellectual property. It's pretty good law that you can give someone your exclusive license. And this lawsuit really attacks the concept of exclusive licenses. And it's so because of that, I, I think P Panini has a very uphill battle, not to mention who's had the exclusive licenses for NBA and NFL for the last 10 years. It's fairly hypocritical of Panini right now to say, you know what, we're completely legal. We're OK. And you know what? When we said we were going to and terminate our licenses earlier, if you paid us the correct amount of money, that was a legal, you know, in that case, you know, you're a legal monopoly. But now that, you know, we you won't pay us enough or, you know, whatever. I don't even know what the reasoning is. Now you're an unlawful monopoly without the licenses. You'll get them in the future. It's really a convoluted argument that they have. So I I think Panini's got a real uphill battle. 
Um, it's, 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 it's hard for me to, you know, you never know what's going to happen. They may fine tune their arguments. Something else may happen, but I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, it's, it's going to be tough for Panini in this case. Like, do you see what fanatics has built through all these acquisitions? Do you see that as technically as a monopoly or is that just the wrong descriptor? And I think it's the, the incorrect way to look at it because in order to be, because you can be a legal monopoly. You know, well, you you can be legally have market power. You can have market power and be legal. But where you might have an unlawful monopoly will be on a focused market. And so even though Fanatics has, you know, jerseys, they have everything, you know, everything all the way down to, you know, you know, casinos and, you know, sports betting. They may have everything there, but this lawsuit only focuses on sports trading cards that little area right there. So regardless of what's going on everywhere else, that's not really going to be too relevant to the lawsuit. It's going to focus on, do they have market power for trading cards for these six markets uh, of trading cards? And if so, is it uh, unlawful uh, being unlawfully used to lessen the quality of cards, to raise the prices of cards, to stifle innovation? And, you know, we really just don't see that because part of Fanatics's answer or Fanatics lawsuit against Panini, they kind of addressed all these and they said, Hey, we bought the printer here and we put a lot of money into making the printing better. We actually, you know, when it comes to our cards, they'll be less expensive. I mean, there, there's lots of things that they say that we're actually improving the market. And, you know, Panini is the one who, if anything, was the monopolist beforehand that was lessening quality. That was, you know, look at the redemptions and, you know, things along those lines. So. Well, so great, great question coming here from Cardboard Casino. And I'm thinking the exact same thing as him. Does does the the existence of Leaf and a successful smaller company in the space, but a you know big company overall, I think, uh, does Leaf existing, surviving and thriving as a smaller competitor in the space, does that help Fanatic's case that they are not a monopoly and that there is healthy competition going on in the space? It really does. And I mean, even the fact that, uh, I mean, Leaf definitely, as they have products that will compete against Fanatics, that does help. And in fact, Panini actually helps Fanatics because Panini has not had an MLB license in a while. And yet they still have MLB, they still have baseball cards. They, you know, they don't have the teams on there or, you know, logos, but they still have MLB cards. So it is, I mean, Panini's own actions show it's possible to sell a product without the exclusive license from the leagues. All right. Well, see, we'll, well, I guess we'll find out. Maybe, maybe we'll find out eventually. Zach, two years, <laughs> two years yeah, from, from when first I have to decide where it's going to be held. Right. True. Yeah, Zach says uh, Paul Lesko would choose fanatics because he likes to win. And listen again, <laughs> I, if, I, if I'm to give an opinion and again, I, my opinion is like, don't take, don't take this with any, any weight at all, but, I don't think Panini stands a chance here myself. And again, what do I know? I don't know much, but just from uh, the armchair quarterback here, the arm, the armchair attorney, which I'm certainly not, that's what I see. And I'm sorry. I think I'm partially there because of uh, your comments as well. It just seems like it's an uphill battle. Hobby champ says, I'm not kidding upper deck. Panini and leaf should all merge, combine all their IPs and licenses and take on fanatics. I wonder what, what, what like, and we don't know how big that combined group would be. Would they ever combine? I highly doubt it. But would that make a difference to the to the situation? 
Probably not. And I mean, since Leaf and Upper Deck were just in an antitrust lawsuit themselves over hockey cards, I don't see them getting in uh, bed together. But it would be, a, you know, all if all those companies got together, it would be a formidable company because you have NHL, you've got Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, you might not have the NBA license, but Michael Jordan is, you know, not just my favorite athlete. I think 50% of the world's favorite athlete. <laughs> so, Speaking of 50%, Paul, Bobby Burrell says, Paul, is there not a 50% plus monopoly law in place for the industry? Is there a precedence from 1991? No, it's, it's, there, there really isn't. It's a, when it comes to antitrust cases, there's so many factors that you look at. And determination of market power, yes, you may have market power at 51%, but it doesn't mean you're unlawfully utilizing your market power at all. So, I mean, because otherwise, if you, you know, if there was a 50% plus rule, that's really bad for Panini because it's had the 50% plus in NBA and NFL coming up till, 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 up till now. So, The professor here says uh, some content providers are noticing that some Topps products are increasing in price. Is this smoke of a monopoly? They so uh, some of the factors that they do look at for uh, for unlawful or for an unlawful monopoly is uh, raising of prices, uh, lessening of quality, stifling of innovation. Uh, those are things that would tend towards uh, you know if you have market power and those things, then it tends to look more like a monopoly uh, than than not so. Okay. All right. Steve Thompson says several employees left Panini for Fanatics. How does that impact the lawsuit? This might be, Steve might have joined us since we talked about that earlier, but can you just sort of revisit that quickly? Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, that's the first basis of all the lawsuits. It's Panini alleged that uh, Fanatics took 36 of its employees unlawfully. And when those employees left, they stole the trade secrets of uh, Panini and are using them at Fanatics. Uh, and part of, you know, Fanatics came back with a response in their lawsuit saying, hey, you know, we're getting these licenses. We're hiring people. We thought we were going to get a lot of people from Panini because that makes the most sense. So, um, yes, it will have an effect on this lawsuit, whether it's, you know, whether it's viewed as lawful or whether it's viewed as unlawful, it'll directly affect uh, uh these the lawsuits are going back and forth and okay so thank you for that now the other the other uh business that fanatics is going into which is the one that i knew i was forgetting earlier was fanatics events and you know putting on whatever conferences card shows and uh, you know i had the the new management promotions team from the national on the show in your chair there last week we had three of the the three fellows on who are who are going to be running the national and uh, the question was asked of them is like, how do you guys feel about fanatics entering the, the events space? And this is not a question for your legal hat, Paul, just a question for you in general, because I'm, I'm still seeing people are asking that question, you know, what's gonna happen moving forward? Is the national going to remain the hobby's preeminent annual event conference? Uh, I think it's going to myself. What do you think? I mean, and again, this is not, Paul the attorney, more Paul the hobbyist. What do you see coming down the line with Fanatics entering the event space? Do you think they're going to take over all the card shows uh, around North America, or do you think they're, they have something else in mind? Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree with you. I think the national is, uh, unless you know, Fanatics wants to buy the national. I think it's it's here to stay, and I think that's going to be the uh, preeminent uh, conference. I think it's you know opens up more competition. Uh, I mean, there's there's hobby, you know conferences or conventions all over the place you know right now and it's not i don't think it's realistic that fanatics can get them all 
Uh, I think it'd be good to have more. I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I think if anything, we need more. Uh, so I think it probably is a good thing. And, you know, even though I think this is the best national I've been at, I thought uh, it did really well. I would like to see competition in this area because, you know, when you have two, two like you know, conferences competing with each other for eyeballs and collectors and cards, I think the hobby, you know, the hobby wins. So we would definitely like to see that. I do see a lot of people sort of uh, expressing frustration when there's two or three card shows within one or two states close together and people can't decide where to go and they feel like they're the pie is being split. So uh, I, I wonder, I wonder. But if it's a different time of year, I can definitely see that being something. Uh, Hobby Champs here says, isn't Fanatics making it so Panini can't create MLBPA licensed cards? Is that something you can uh, respond to, Paul? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's part of the lawsuit is the fact that it's not just that Fanatics is getting the MLB, NFL, and uh, NBA uh, li exclusive licenses. They're getting the Players Association's licenses also. That That is correct. So once Fanatics has those, I believe, um, I don't remember which one it is. I think it's the NFL. If you're going to have any more than six athletes, I think you need to get a license from the PA. Uh, for those. So you can't just go and get an individual license from everybody, you know, maybe. Uh, and then, you know, you need to get it from the Players Association. So that that would be correct. Okay, good. Stiff Arm Wax, welcome to the show, says, is owning the big three, MLB, NBA, and NFL rights, monopolistic? I I don't think so because uh, just, just owning those rights, no. Uh, because, you know, right now Panini owns two of them. Uh, you know, it has the NBA and NFL. So two is OK, but three is not. What's the dividing line and why is that the dividing line? And you have to define what the market is, because if the markets, you know, if the market is as Panini defines them solely as high end NFL cards or high end NBA cards, it's a completely different market to look at than the entire trading card world. Because uh, I mean, you have to remember, you know, the uh, FTC uh, allowed XM and Sirius to merge, even those were the two you know, only providers of digital radio, because they said, hey, we're not competing as much against each other. We're competing against podcasts. That's really where the competition is. So you need to figure out what is the you know, what is the market here? And I, you know, I would argue that the market is all trading cards of any types because you are, like I said, if I'm buying, you know, Lorcana cards, if I'm buying Lorcana cards this week, I'm not buying MLB cards this week. Yeah. Like how many sport collectors got into TCG and, uh, and all sorts of, uh, even NFTs, people were lured, <laughs> people were romanced and lured into that, in that direction from, from sports cards, as if that was an actual competing product, which. I think some people think it is, but you know, to stiff arms question here, the existence of leaf wild card and other micro micro brew, micro card breweries, micro card companies. I'm not calling leaf a micro, but you know, the existence of these card companies shows that any, not almost anybody can make an unlicensed card. If you want to, if you get your, if you have your ducks in a row by having deals with those athletes, that's a trading card of that athlete. The fact that it has the player, the, the team logo on it, is that is a court going to see that as as an anti as, as an antitrust issue? I, I I don't again, no attorney here, but I don't think so. You're the attorney. I don't think so. It sounds like you don't either. So, no. uh, okay, let's go to Michael Ham's question. He says it sounds like Panini. 
Sounds like Panini. Higher prices, lack of innovation, and poor quality. <laughs> and poor, can they sue? Can they sue themselves? Very funny, Michael Ham. Very funny. <laughs> no, and that's it's it's. I mean, that's part of uh, Fanatics' defense. They uh, say that while Panini's had the uh, exclusive licenses for the last ten years, they point to many instances of what they believe are higher prices, lack of innovation, and poor quality. So, uh, that, so by suing Fanatics, Fanatics suing them back for those reasons, I guess they're kind of suing themselves. Yeah, in a way, in a way, suing for the same thing they could that they could be sued for, I suppose. Lapper here says uh, the comp. So talking about card shows says the competition because there have been new card shows. The competition created and more big shows would push every show to improve and create a better user experience. I mean that's but that's simple economics. That's simple business. Competition breeds innovation and creativity and pushes things forward. But hey, war does that too with technology. I mean I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying there's other things that that will do that besides just competition. But it, you know, the lack of competition doesn't automatically mean that you have monopoly in place. It just means that no one else might be doing it or trying to. Okay, Steve Thompson says, uh, Paul did, yeah, well, Steve, Paul showed everyone the jersey at the beginning of the show. Very cool. Steve, did you sign, Steve, were you able to sign that jersey as well? Love to hear it. Uh, the professor here says the Fanatics event occurs the same time as the National in Chicago, but at McCormick instead of Seven Center. Uh, with better air conditioning and hold trade nights in Soldier Field will be a great market power, to use your term earlier, Paul, to, will be a great market power display. I think an Uber would win <laughs> because people would be taking Ubers back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth. Bobby Burrell says, does the Clayton Act fit into this case anywhere here? Uh, can yeah, you tell the- us what, what this is, Paul, and if it if it does fit in? Yeah, the, the 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 antitrust, uh, the laws of antitrust are encap- encapsulated in the Clayton Act and the Sherman Act. Uh, those are where you get your antitrust laws. So, uh, and I can never remember which one stands for which, but uh, they're in all likelihood asserted in these cases. All right, thank you. Cardboard Casino says Fanatics cannot buy the National since it is a nonprofit organization. And yeah, the management team last week on the show here told us that the show is is not for sale. They're going to be continuing on. They signed a long-term deal, so uh, it's going to be running as the national for quite some time. Uh, as things stand right now, things could certainly change. Decoy Card says, while I have no issue seeing Panini have a hard time, thoughts if Fanatics creates an agreement with leagues and players associations to make memorabilia exclusive? Example, Fanatics becoming an NHL jersey maker. Uh, your thoughts on that, Paul? I'm kind of lost on there. Uh, I mean, doesn't Fanatics already, and I could be wrong here, don't they already make exclusive licenses for jerseys? I I guess not with the leagues. I'm kind of confused. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Let's let's keep on moving. Bobby Burrell says, if we only had one company back in in the 1990 boom, we might not be here discussing this today. Fair enough. No, no, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, in, I mean, I started collecting in the eighties and in 86, I had such choices of, you know, players and uniforms from, you know, I was buying Donruss. I was buying tops. I mean, you know, just, you know, if you went to the store and they're out of tops buy Donruss, you know, or buying sports flicks. I mean, there was so many different stuff that was out there. And I like that because there was a, a, a lot of competition there. But then again, I also like collecting now when there's no less, there's still some good cards that are out there. So it's, just that Steve, Thompson, Steve Thompson says, I see Fanatics being the main sponsor of the National. And that's kind of what I can see happening too, Steve and Paul, is these two, 
these two bodies working together instead of against each other to build the hobby instead of more conflict. Like, listen, Panini's done a few, sorry, Fanatics has done a few things to the chagrin of some collectors thus far. We're all hopeful that the hobby is going to be help, healthy and it's going to thrive. But if they just start pissing off every group everywhere, the general hobby is going to get upset, even more upset. And you don't know where things can go from there. Although at the same time, the hobby wants their cards. So they're going to go to whoever's making them. So see what that, what, what that, where that leads fanatics to go with uh, future moves that they're going to make on, on that 3D chessboard. Um, okay. Anything else that you want to mention about fanatics versus Panini, the three lawsuits? Is there anything else there we didn't cover yet? There's so much going on there, but I think we covered uh, everything at a, at, at a good enough high level. Uh, but I mean, the, the first battle is going to be where are these cases going to be heard? And then uh, hopefully we'll get back past that and start getting into the meat of these cases. And Paul, Bob's big boy kind of sums things up nicely saying Panini created this version of Fanatics in a sense by taking all of the exclusive rights in 2010 for NBA and 2015 for NFL. They power played everyone and built this monster. This lawsuit is ironic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way a lot of people are seeing it right now. And it's not helping Panini's uh, like reputation amongst the hobbyists by doing something that just seems to be so hypocritical right now. Yeah. And that's what I'm I'm not make I'm not stating that as my opinion. I'm seeing a lot of commentary that is in that direction right now. So, all right, let's get on to something else here. Uh, let's go on to this case that surrounds this LeBron James exquisite rookie patch auto. It involves uh, a plaintiff by the name of Spiegel. It involves the Instagram and Twitter accounts, I guess, called Card Porn. And it also involves uh, golden auctions, I believe. Um, why don't you explain to us what's going on here? Yeah, so uh, this uh, this case uh, it's actually two cases, and it's really uh, it's it's really a fun one to watch because I've always uh, always for the last ten years I've been worried about uh, business disparagement type claims. You see it all the time on social media. This card's fake. This card's not a PSA ten. Look at it. These people are doing something underhanded. You see a lot of uh, disparagement out there on on the internet. And I've always wondered, when is somebody going to sue over this? You know, because sometimes if you have a big enough audience, you could be hurting someone's business. And that's really what happened here. So the Spiegels owned a Jordan RPA and this card was going LeBron. up for auction. I'm sorry. You said Jordan, but you meant LeBron. Oh, LeBron. Oh. It's See, okay. It's okay. Everybody, I, I go to bed at nine o'clock typically. So, you know, this is, this is late night for me, but, uh, a, Le a LeBron RPA, and uh, this was they were going to auction it on uh, Golden, and they were expecting it to uh, bring in two million dollars. In fact, at the time, uh, well, it, the, at the time that the bids got up to six hundred and eighty thousand uh, dollars, the auction stopped because there was a uh, Instagram uh, social media account called Card Porn, and they had put together this explanation of why they believe the card was not authentic, that they thought that the uh, patch that was in this card was actually substituted out. And this is a different uh, patch that was in there uh, because of the uh, their reach. Uh, Cardpoint has lots and lots of followers. Uh, Golden uh, allegedly felt some pressure and took the card off uh, off the auction block. Uh, 
Can I, I just want to interject quickly, and just for anyone who's watching that might not know, swapping out of patches is common. It's been common for over for 20 years now or so. Bit of an epidemic. It, there, there's been lots of this going on. And so the fact that people are looking for this and 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 sniffing it out is not, and I'm not I'm not making a comment on that card. I'm just saying that this wasn't just this didn't come out of nowhere. This is something that has been going on, and there's several proven cases of fake patches out there going back again 20 years. So I just want to like lay that context so people who may not know understand that this is not a one-off accusation. And I may, you know, this is a an, this is a, a specific accusation. But fake patches are rampant in the hobby. Yeah, and, and typically where they do it is if you have a boring old one color patch, if you replace it with a patch that has a logo or, or a part of a logo or something in there, just to make the card look more desirable, and that's what's alleged here. Thank so, uh, so Golden ended the auction, and uh, and what when the auction ended, uh, went to the Spiegels, who were the owners of the card, and said, hey, there's somebody who's offering a million dollars to buy this card right now. Uh, you know, you should probably just sell it, uh, you know, and, and just, just take the loss. And the Spiegel said, no, uh, we're not going to do that. And ultimately, what they did is they brought these lawsuits. The law first lawsuit was filed against card porn. Second lawsuit was filed against uh, Golden Auctions. And they alleged there that this, that card porn and the taking down of the card from the auction has irreparably harmed this card. No one is going to think that this card is authentic, even though they allege it actually is. And as part of their proof of that, they say they have a letter from Upper Deck. This is a card that was created by Upper Deck. And they say that this letter says that the card is authentic. Now, there's kind of a debate out there about whether this letter was withdrawn. So what's going to be interesting to watch in the future is, you know, what really is Upper Deck's position on this card? And I think that'll probably be fairly definitive for this case. But uh, in order for this, for, in order for these cases to start, you have to serve the defendant. So everyone knows who Ken Golden is, who Golden Auctions is. So they've been served and they moved to dismiss the case. And that's pending right now. But nobody, you know, when this lawsuit was filed, the plaintiffs did not know who card porn was. So they've been trying to figure out who card porn is. And one way that they attempted to do this was by serving a subpoena uh, with the permission of the court on Meta. Meta owns Instagram. And in order to be a verified user, you're supposed to have provided address information to, uh, to, to Meta, to Instagram uh, for this. So they filed a, a served a subpoena and tried to get this information. And you know the reason I'm bringing this up, and it sounds like it might be boring, but it's because Meta has for the last four or five months done nothing about this. They've looked into it. They say, we're going to you know, look into this. We'll give you the information. They gave them only some of the information. But four or five months afterwards, they're like, you know what? We don't even have this information. We're sorry. So there was actually, I think there was a hearing yesterday. Uh, the state court dockets are a little bit more difficult to look at. But there was a hearing yesterday, uh, I think, between the Spiegels and Meta, where the Spiegels were asking for Meta to be sanctioned uh, for withholding or for at least misleading them into thinking they had this information that Meta had this information when they might not have actually had this information. So you're supposed to. So the reason they need this is the to start the lawsuit. You have to serve. You have to know who they are, and you have to serve them. So the Spiegels actually did uh, rather recently named who they think is uh, card porn, and so 
we don't know how they got that information. They got it from some third party somewhere. And so they say that they have successfully served card porn. So even though this case was filed in January, here we are in August and the case only may now just beginning to start. So it's, it's, it's another one. And I think this is one of those ones that has a lot of potential precedent for the industry. <laughs> Excuse me. It's how much can you say about uh, a product or a card? Uh, what due diligence do you need to do? Uh, what protections do does the First Amendment provide to people? So I think this is a very interesting case. And it's, it's going to be as it develops, it's going to be really interesting uh, for lawyers. And I think also for anybody who, uh, you know, is on social media and commenting on cards or card companies. Oh, that's interesting right there for all of us content creators and even just not just not just like podcast and YouTubers, but anyone with a platform, which is everybody now who has an account on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and everywhere else. So YouTube, uh, Bob's big boy says disparagement is the hobby version of shorting a stock. I think that's <laughs> the best way I've ever, I've ever thought about that. Bob's big boy here. I don't think you're too far, too far off there. I want to ask a question though about, so you said that it seems like, uh, the Spiegel's were able to identify who card porn was and uh, allegedly that individual has been served. Let's say that individual was not a, a citizen or a resident of the United States. Does that change? Like what's the jurisdiction over this, over, over this case? Like if the person lives in, I don't know, Egypt, what, what, how does that impact uh, the reach and, and any, any repercussions uh, the person behind that, that social media account could, could suffer? So uh, it, it depends uh, on uh, the actual service. So if the individual, regardless of where their place of residence was, if they were served in the United States uh, by a process server, they were served. Uh, so it, it doesn't matter. And that appears to be what the allegations are uh, that the Spiegel's are making, that they have served him in person in the United States. Now, whether that service is going to be good enough, the court will ultimately probably have to determine that. But if the uh, uh, if the defendant in the case is abroad is a uh, resides in a foreign country, that makes it really difficult because depending on which country you're in, you have to uh, go through what's called the Hague Convention to serve somebody, which requires translating documents. It requires getting a court on the other side of the ocean to approve the documents and make sure everything's in order and get basically permission from the courts to serve somebody. So what that ultimately means is it slows the case down even more. So if, you know, if service isn't proper, if card porn is uh, located uh, outside of the United States, even though here we are in August when the case should start, we might be looking at another six months or more <laughs> before the case even starts. And any, anything else on the meta side of things like is, is, uh, is because, you know, the hobby lives on meta a lot in a lot of ways, a, a big, you know, there, there's a, a part of the hobby that lives on, on meta, whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram. And now threads, I guess, I guess as well. Um, not seeing much activity there lately, but anyway, uh, like, is there anything that that could upset Meta because of this case that could have a, a ripple effect through the hobby that would impact the rest of us, or not really? Am I far-reaching here? No. 
Not really. I mean, the, the thing to look at is, uh, so I, I, I view cases from a, a plaintiff's side and I see Meta as just, you know, being a stick in the mud and not doing what they're required. And they should have from day one said, hey, we don't have this information. Or from day one, hey, we got your subpoena. Here is the information. Now, that's how I want to view it. Now, if you're Meta or if you're someone on social media, well, you know what? Meta kind of did a very good job of dragging this process out and making it as painful as possible. So if anything, it looks like Meta is willing to protect its uh, users. Uh, that's not always the case, but at least here, it looks like they are, you know, they did everything to make it as difficult as possible to learn this company's identity. Now, if they get sanctioned, they may change that and it may be easier to get data. So, so at least right now, the take home is, you know, Meta does a very good job of making it very difficult to identify who uh, its users are. Maybe it'll ultimately cough that up if it has the information, but it's going to make the other side pay money. If they get sanctioned, that may change. What are the Spiegels looking for here? Because as you told us, the auction was ended when the card was at, I think you said $680,000. There was a, maybe a pre-auction estimate of $2 million. I think that's what you said. I mean, if you were to, if you were to look at all the, all of Golden's pre-auction estimates and what actually happened, and I don't know what, how, what that ratio is, is it, do they on average hit 70% of estimate, 80, 100, 110, whatever it is. I mean, would the courts look at some record of success for auction estimate because we don't know what that card would have sold for so what are they basing their claim on as far as a value what kind of damages can they can they really logically seek out and even if you were to say well we're going to look at other copies of that card well different grades different grading company slabs different patches different placement of the auto of the auto on the card different quality of the auto different artistic like features of the auto by LeBron James. I mean, he signed, what, 122 of these cars, if you include the golds, and they're all going to be a little bit different. And if I'm the defendant here, I'm I'm going to like really drill down into, into these little details here because I don't know, what, what are they asking for? Yeah. So you know, luckily, when you file a case, you do not need to say the exact dollar value that you are seeking. Uh, and what's going to happen? And you've done a very good job of auditioning for the role of being an expert in the case because both sides will hire an expert. Uh, and, you know, the plaintiff's expert will say it's, you know, two million dollars or more. And the defendant's expert will say, "Ooh, even six hundred eighty thousand dollars. That was an overbid. Somebody was going to probably withdraw that. And they'll go through all the reasons that you said uh, for that. You know, the defendant will say, well, you know, look at this autograph right here. It's sloppy. And the plaintiff's uh, expert will say it's not sloppy. It's unique. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it'll be a lot of factors that each of them will say. And then ultimately, the jury will have to decide. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, dog and pony show and the jury gets to decide, do they dog or do they like the pony, which, which, is, which is prettier, which provides the better story. And I'll tend to agree with, with them. Sometimes the jury listens to both sides and does something in the middle, but quite often they choose whoever they like the best and they just agree with them 100%. So at the beginning, you kind of said that there were some, some allegation that the patch was fake and that's why it, it came off a, it came off of golden auctions or they, they delisted it from their, from their auction. And because the card porn account said that it was fake. And I mean, I saw those posts by the card porn account back when the, when they first came around. And um, again, just my, my, my reviewing it and, and having some experience myself in the world of fake patches uh, because I've been an advocate against fake patches. I mean, we all are, but 
you know, I used to have a website called fakepatchreport.com where you could report fake patches and I had a whole due diligence thing set out. And I mean, I even went to Upper Deck to their to their uh, facility in 2009 to, to document the images of all the patch cards from their highest end product called the Cup that came the 0809 series. I went down on my own time and my own dime and I documented and I even took like camera how I had I was no photographer I figured out how to do it I worked with a local expert a local well, expert the, the camera store here where I live and anyway um you know I, I've been really again and again I know I'm not alone here but I was doing something about it for a while in the, in the 2000s and from what I could tell from from what the images I saw I thought it was I thought it was fake myself but and I don't yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this right now. I don't know, but I, that was my thought at the time, and I've put out opinions on cards before. Uh, but there seemed to be some evidence. Now, my the only thing there is that you know people could doctor up images and make a pre you know a one color white patch look like it like like the card looked like that before, and now it looks like this. So now I don't know. I shouldn't say I don't know why someone. There's all sorts of reasons why somebody might do that, but is in your in reading the the case yourself what what do you feel do you have any opinion on which way this is going to go do you think the card was fake or the patch in the card was replaced it's this is so this is a case where some of the allegations uh if you this is what we're the one where you have to look at the complaint by the spiegels and you have to look at the uh you know the other documents that are out there by uh card form because depending on who you look at you can see both sides make some persuasive arguments the uh, Spiegels do focus on the doctoring the, 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 of the information. They say that there's evidence that the card has been digitally altered. Uh, you know, so there's some allegations of that. Now, that gets a little too technical for me uh, to determine. Uh, but then on the flip side, uh, if you look at the card porn stuff, I think, yes, I think they did a very good job of explaining, hey, here's our reasoning of why we think the card is fake. So... Uh, I think uh, because of that, if it's not shown that card porn doctored the images, then I think card porn has done a good job where, you know, maybe they were wrong, but you see their reasoning here and they're not acting maliciously or evilly. This is not something where they're trying to ruin uh, the Spiegels for no reason. Allegedly, you know, what they're looking at here is, you know, hey, here's, you know, card porn, you know, notoriously is looking out for the hobby. So they're saying, Hey, here's something that we think is counterfeit, you know, buyer beware, uh, that, that, you know, seems to be their, you know, theme for everything. So I think given if what card porn posted, if their reasoning isn't, or their images that they had, if that wasn't doctored by them, and if they're not acting with evil intent, I think they're ultimately going to win this case. Now, if it's shown that they did doctor those images or somebody, you know, created the, the doctorings and cardboard didn't dot its I's and cross its T's and showed that as the evidence, I think it gets a little more thornier. But I think it's I think, yes, I think this is an easier case for cardboard to win. I think it's a more difficult case for the Spiegels to win. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of. I feel the same way. Listen, I don't, uh, you know, card porn is a controversial account. Some people love them. Some people hate them. Uh, but, you know, I think the intention here was to save the buyer, the eventual buyer of that card from buying what, what they thought based on their research was a, was a bad card. Yeah. And so um, 
a tampered card. Let's not say bad because the cardboard itself is still good. The autograph is still good. It's just the the patch inside has been upgraded on the secondary market, if you can put it that way. It has been improved from an aesthetics perspective, but it's not as it came out of the pack. And we're uh, as collectors in this space, we like the cards uh, as they were out of the pack, and in in most cases. So um, I think you know I think they had good intention. Uh, but, but the Spiegels are, are the ones that maybe are left holding the bag here. And then who do they go after? Like the, the golden auctions did, I think did the right thing by pulling that card off and not sticking, not moving that, that hot potato bag off to a, an unsuspecting new purchaser. So now where, where do the Spiegels go? Like, shouldn't they go after the person that they bought the card from or the, auction house they bought the card from or the consigner to the auction house that they bought i mean i don't know how you go i don't know how you go after the auction house because they're not in the business of saying this is a good patch or bad patch they're just they're a a third party seller so do they go do they name the auction house do they name the do they have to then get from the auction house the consigners information where they got it from but it could still be again that person might not be the it could go there could be several own historical owners between the patch being tampered with and the Spiegels owning it. Like, where does this go at the end of the day? Or are the Spiegels just left holding the bag? Yeah, this is, this is one of those uh, famous sayings, sue everybody and let the court sort it out. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where that it's, you know, it, it's, I am surprised that we haven't had uh, any of the, uh, you know, previous card owners uh, lawsuits against them or have them named because, you know, I, you know, if I own this card, there's, you know, I'd say there's fault, everywhere here. I mean, you know, whoever, whoever swaps out the past, obviously they're a guilty party too, but then each level of, you know, sue everybody. That's kind of where I am too. But I mean, ultimately, yes. Who did the first, I mean, if you look at who did the first bad act, whoever substituted out the, uh, you know, the patch, if that actually happened, if the patch wasn't substituted out, well, then you're looking at something completely different. And is that person still traceable? But you know, what really comes to mind here now is that because this, this isn't, a one-off case there are so many fake patch cards out there we just know before and after pictures of cards uh that that's the case and you know it almost makes me scared to buy a fancy patch card now i've got several of them and sometimes my position on this paul as a hobbyist and a collector is all right i've got a i got a hundred cards five of them are probably bad you know five are probably bad and 95 are good and just like with, you know, just like with uh, slabbed vintage cards, whether it's PSA or SGC or Beckett or whoever's slabbing vintage cards, probably a percentage of those cards in our collections do, are trimmed or have re- whatever. Some of them are not good, but they've slipped through and gotten past the past the grading company. Like, but that's where that, and then it, it also goes into bidding on marketplaces. Yeah, you know, I've, I'm going to buy a hundred cards this year and I probably got shill bid on, five or 10 of them. It's just part of the game. Like, you know, if you, it's almost, you know, like if you, if you can't, and listen, I'm not, I'm not saying, Hey, let's not try to get better and advocate to improve these things within the hobby. But I almost think like you almost have to accept them that they're a part of this game. They're a part of being a hobby participant. And so accept it or stop, stop buying, stop doing the hobby because you just you're you're never going to be happy and then you know you end up uh just 
complaining all the time about, about, about it, yet you still feed the machine. So I don't know, thoughts on, on everything I just said. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm more of a, uh, uh, truth in advertising where if, you know, if you have your you know patch cards that, you know, might be altered, if you say, Hey, this is a patch card, I think it's authentic. I don't know that for a fact. So long as there's no, you know, nothing hidden, I'm all, I'm all for it. Shill bidding, I think, is the, the worst. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I've, I've had, uh, I, I don't sell cards anymore. I, I think I did a little over COVID, and I was shill bid so many times on uh, what I was. Uh, I, I don't know if it's shill bid. It was just fake people bidding up my stuff and then never paying for it, and then they're obviously selling stuff that's out there too. So that's just frustrating. But I think. So long as everybody is open and disclosing of all information, I'm fine with a free market economy and, you know, buyer beware in that instance. But it's where you have people hiding nefarious actions. That's where, you know, I, I get a little miffed. <laughs> Me too. Let's let's get rid of, yeah, let's catch them if we can. It's tough. I mean, the the infamous patch faker is known as Kenny. It's a Kenny, Kenny, it's a Kenny card, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, what a lot of, a lot of, long-term hobbyists called the person behind all these fake patches. All right. The professor here says, Jeremy has been advocating that the card companies should be taking pictures of each patch card that is manufactured. Why do you think there is resistance there, Paul? And the professor's right. I have been advocating for that for several, for uh, coming up on 15 years now. And they're doing it for some cards, but not all. And, you know, I can answer these questions. Why are they not doing it? There's two reasons. Number one is cost. They will say that it's the cost of doing it. Well, do we want to? Do we want security in our cards, fellow hobbyists? If yes, we might have to pay more for them. I know costs are already super high. We might have to pay more because someone's got to pay for it. The other, the other reason is that if those images are public, it let there's no element of surprise left, and they're they worry that well, if the nicest patch is pulled first, then people might not open as many packs because there's not as many nice patches left and all that. Those are the reasons that I understand are are stopping card companies from documenting all the patch cards that they put out there. Paul, do you have any other insight as to why that be why why it might be that way? Uh, I, I, you know, for the last fifteen years, I've mainly been a plaintiff's uh, litigator, and I tend to find that companies don't do anything unless they get sued and lose. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes, you know, you know, if uh, and I think it's great. I think companies should actually take pictures of uh, at least the high end patches uh, that are out there to to help authentication, and maybe don't release them to the public, but keep them so you have them. So if an issue does pop up, if somebody asks the card company for them, well, here's actually the images for it. But I tend to find that. You know, one of the biggest drivers of safety, uh, safety features and you know, protecting the consumer is winning lawsuits, bringing lawsuits and winning lawsuits against companies. OK, uh, all right. Appreciate that. Um, hello, David Kaplan. Good to see you. LC, LGC says, confess, Jay Lee, you are card porn. No, I am not card porn. I can promise you that I certainly am not. Uh, Steve Thompson says, if Panini and PSA stand behind the authenticity, how does card porn have a leg to stand on? Well, they, they, first of all, PSA has, I, was it even PSA or was it Beckett? I think it was a, was it a Beckett slab or a PSA? I think it's a Beckett slab. I don't know. If, actually, I don't know if the card is graded. Um, and, I can be, I can be wrong. 
Yeah, oh. I could be wrong. And it's Upper Deck. Yeah. It's upper, and deck. Yeah. upper Deck. So Upper Deck did issue the letter of authenticity, but that's been contested now. Maybe it's been withdrawn or not. So, and Upper Deck hasn't, you know, as far as I know, Upper Deck hasn't chimed in as to their current position as to the card. It would I don't think a lot. Yeah. Yeah. My understanding is that that letter was was bogus or it was no good. That letter was was written, but was uh, was was should not have been written, is my understanding. And secondly. Um, like, I don't think Upper Deck knows. I don't think Upper Deck could, could, could definitively state one way or the other if that was the original card because they did not keep images. So to Steve Thompson's question about if PSA stands behind it or Beckett or any grading company, they can't stand behind it. They, they don't, they cannot, they do not know if the patches are original if they did not get documented images from the card companies. So um, there's just nothing... This this comment, Steve Thompson, your comment here, it, it's there's nothing to it. There's nothing to this comment because Upper Deck doesn't remember, and secondly, PSA has no way to know. PSA can't stand behind it, and I don't think they do. Or Beckett, or SGC, or or, or CSG. I don't think the grading companies stand behind the patch or authenticate the patch, and I don't think that they should. I don't think it's. I personally don't think that they should. I don't think that they can. I think it's on the. I think it falls squarely on the card companies to document your patches, and if you haven't done that or you don't, um, and I understand why they don't. They're more interested in the next product to come out versus the one that's already out the door that they've been paid for. They're worried about the next product, and I think it's short-sighted for them. And and I've and I, anyway, okay, those are my thoughts. Anything to add before we go on to the next comment here? No, I think that's good. Yeah. Justin Wickeiser says. Uh, Great question. Is it a marketplace's role to police the grading companies? I mean, I sure have my thoughts on this. And and for for uh, for complete transparency, Justin Wickeiser does work with Alt and uh, formerly was with PWCC. Uh, so has a probably has his own thoughts on this. But um, I'll share mine. But why don't you go first, Paul? I, I mean, I can see this you know question uh, going two ways. You know, is the marketplace voting with their dollars, or are you voting with lawsuits? I mean, I, I think when it comes to, uh, I always think that the first place the marketplace should vote is with their money. I mean, just if you think someone's doing something wrong, don't give them any money. Uh, but then also, I do think uh, you know. So maybe I'm looking less at the marketplace and more at the the consumer. But I think the consumer is the one that should either pay money for something or not as as a form of policing. And if it's something that harms them, I think bring a lawsuit. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My thoughts are my thoughts are are simply no. I I don't think the marketplace needs to police the grading companies. But I do think that for the betterment of the hobby that they should at least be thinking about things and they should they should be responding to inquiries and almost having a, and I don't want to spend anybody's money here, but having some sort of a, 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 a group within to deal with these claims and to have and, and then the hobby overall needs to be more communicative and more cooperative and working together. And really, if a patch is able to be removed from a card, it should destroy the card in some way, there must be a way there has to be a technology out there that the card companies could employ. It would come at a cost, but to just totally mitigate the chance that a, a patch could be removed without destroying the card. Again, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not right there. Maybe there isn't a way to do that. But you know, you back to that old cliche: we can put a man on the moon, allegedly, but we can't find a way to make sure the patch can't be swapped out of a out of a sports card. I don't know. 
But my, my simple answer is, is, is no. I also think that the grading companies should be very clear that they are not authenticating the memorabilia embedded within the card. They are simply authenticating that the card is not a counterfeit card. Um, I would love for them, trust me, I would love for them to be able to tell us all the patches are legitimate or they're good or they're bad. I just don't think that they can. I think that the, the patch fakers are too good and they leave no trace behind. Hmm. So I have, I have two fake patches in my collection, Paul, that I've acquired not knowing they were fake, but then being shown being shown evidence. I'm like, wow. So then I look at these, I'm like, I see no signs of tampering at all. Mm -hmm. even under, even yeah, under, I, I would, I, I'm not as familiar with that, but I would think that there would have to be some evidence of tampering there. But if they're that good that they can do it, it's just, it, it, it seems counterintuitive because how much money are you actually making off of these fake patches? I mean, hard to steal the card. It just looks a little better, you know? Yeah, it's, it's it's yeah I know right right but it's still inauthentic and it's been uh, it's it's a it's just a it, it's a uh, it's not a good thing it's a bad actor sort of sort of thing it's it's uh, misleading and uh, it's just it's not acceptable in the hobby okay let's go to this question here from Mookie Chilson if patch swapping is a no no Paul where does card trimming and restoration fit on the continuum of illegal behavior in the hobby. Yeah. So I, you know, getting beyond just the fact that, uh, you know, currently, you know, how, you know, you know, collectors want untrimmed cards, you know, they want cards that have not been uh, restored. They want a cards as authentic as possible. Uh, I think the legality gets in here is if somebody has a trimmed card, knowing it's a trimmed card and says it's not, that's where the legality gets in is when you it's, and again, it goes back to the whole, I'm all about just the fair, you know, the free, you know, you should give all the information that you have for cards. Uh, so the fact that you're trimming a card is not illegal. The fact that you're restoring a card, that's not illegal. It's taking that next step of taking a card that you know is trimmed or a card that's knows that's been restored and saying it's authentic. It's never been touched. It's never been trimmed. That's when the legalities, uh, pop up, uh, uh in the hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that comment there. Uh, let's go down to uh, JP here says, could grading and auction companies subscribe to a service provided by the card companies for authentication? I mean, I think it's simpler than that, JP. I think just provide the images of your cards, of your, of your patch cards to the grading companies that you have uh, an agreement with some sort of, I mean, it's for the better of the hobby. That's what this is or make them public for everybody, grading companies and consumers. I think eventually, you know, there's a big move towards transparency in a lot of things. And I think this is one of them um, as well. Uh, Justin Wickeiser says, we passed on selling an exquisite LeBron RPA that the hobby believed was altered. It was later sold on Heritage. It was the stance we took. He goes on to say, it was a very difficult topic that I continue to discuss with friends and colleagues uh, in the hobby. I continue to err on the side of caution I think is probably a, a good a good approach right there. And Bob's big boy says scanning the uncut sheet of the prime game use pad. It, it's it just doesn't work that way, Bob. That's not how they're made. Uh, I don't believe that's how they're made. That that it's an uncut sheet with patches in them of prime cards. Uh, but may, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And I can tell you, I was at the pack out for the you know highest end product in hockey, and uh, it. It's more complex than you think, but I can, I've, I've done it. Like I've actually, I don't know, Upper Deck might regret this now that they let me do this back in 09, but I was there. I proved that you can, 
that you can capture images of, I captured images of 28,000 cards from their premier, the cup release, Paul, as I said earlier, in 09, I went, I flew down to North Carolina and did this and I proved it can happen. I was there when they were hand packing the product. I was one step in the process where I had the cards. I would, I, I laid them out and I photographed them and then I put them back and they went along for hand packing. And I was, no, I, I touched these cards. I was extremely careful. I understand what, what they are, but and maybe that's what they don't want is another set of hands on them. Maybe that's it. Right. But I don't know. Like I think about the future of the secondary market, the integrity of these cards moving forward. Okay. We're, we're going, we're going uh, pretty heavy there. I want to talk about um, the, another case, Paul, and this is now alt the marketplace alt versus Beckett. This is a BGS slabbed card trimmed maybe what what's this case all about yeah so this is uh it goes back to an earlier question having to do with who's the guilty party when it comes to cards that have uh, been changed or altered or there's some defect in it so uh here alt uh purchased a um uh steph curry rookie gold uh card uh that was graded by bgs and they spent uh, uh several i think it was a hundred and sixty thousand dollars somewhere so over a thousand dollars for this card um, when, uh, after holding it for a while, they wanted to sell the card. Uh, but in order to, in order to sell it, they thought it would have more value in a PSA slab rather than a BGS slab. So they broke the slab, submitted it to, uh, PSA and PSA came back and said, Hey, we can't grade this card. It's been altered. It's been trimmed. Uh, so then Alt then, uh, brought the card back to BGS and BGS said, uh, yes, this card has been trimmed. So Alt filed a lawsuit against BGS saying that, uh, you know, According to your policies, if you have a card that is altered or if you have a card that has been trimmed, you will not grade it. We relied on the grade, the fact that you graded it uh, when we bought this card. You know, it was a major consideration that we had that you guys said this card wasn't trimmed. Turns out it was trimmed. We think that under your warranty policy, you need to pay us the current value of the card, which I believe was in excess of three hundred thousand dollars. So that's the basis of the lawsuit there. In the uh, uh, inevitable motion to dismiss, you get a motion to dismiss in every case, uh, BGS uh, argued uh, that, well, you know what? Alt did not exist at the time that this card was graded. Because of that, they can't rely on any representations we made about this card. So because of that, we should dismiss the case. And I referred to this as the uh, F them kids, you know, going with the, again, Michael Jordan being my favorite person ever. You know, you have the Michael Jordan memes with F them kids uh, on there. So, um, but luckily, you know, so I, and I was, you know, quite disappointed in Beckett for uh, even putting this position forward, basically saying that, you know, if you were born, I mean, not just companies that were created afterwards, but if you were born after a card was graded by BGS, if somehow you didn't get the ability to get their warranty on those cards, it was, it's just, you know, it's, I think it's just crap. It really is. And luckily the judge agreed and uh, uh, denied their motion to dismiss uh, in that regard. So that lawsuit will go forward. And that's going to be a important, one of those important lawsuits in determining where is the liability? Who is ultimately liable for a card like this that was trimmed, uh, but was actually uh, was actually graded? But I think here, getting more into the merits of the case, what I think is the more interesting issue is Alt 
broke the car, you know, broke the slab open themselves and then submitted it to PSA. So you have this chain of custody argument that uh, BGS can now make because what happened when you broke the card open? You know, what, who, who was everybody that handled it? Maybe somebody else trimmed it. You know, the option is potentially there. I mean, there's so many open doors there. And I think that's the better BGS argument there was what happened, what's the chain of custody? And if you can't prove the chain of custody, then we should win rather than this whole focus on, you know, oh, you were born after we graded the card, so you don't count. Yeah, that, that I mean, that just seems like that. That's comedic that that would be the the approach to me. But I guess uh, I guess you do whatever you can to defend yourself in in some cases uh, like that one right yeah, there. It's, it's definitely a scorched earth defense, and it makes me wonder. You know, it's I always say it's really important in the hobby that you know if you have lawyers that they're card collectors also, so they understand what's going on. Otherwise, you're going to get aggressive defense attorneys that will make any argument that they can to win the case. And I think maybe that's what happened here, where the defense attorneys came up with what they thought was a brilliant argument, which just flies in the face of you know what I think is you know how grading companies actually work. And I mean, if a grading company has a disclaimer on their website that says, you know, uh, it's just an opinion, uh, take it for what it's worth. You know, we're not guaranteeing that this card is 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 authentic. We're not guaranteeing that this card is untrimmed or or unaltered. You know, does that just is that just a buyer beware situation, or could there because even even though that might be what disclaimers that they put out there publicly. Uh, you know, but they are still so relied upon with with significant material amounts of money being associated with their slab and their their opinion, even if it's not an opinion, just the, the fact that it's a, an implied opinion, even if it is, um, could they still be li held liable? Yeah, because I think here you have the uh, BGS has their guarantee. Uh, you know, they're guaranteeing that they're not going to grade cards that uh, are trimmed or altered. So because of that, that's where the legal duty comes in. Now, had they come back and say, hey, we just put stuff in slabs and assign random numbers that we feel like should be assigned that day. And it's our opinion that it's this, but we might be wrong. Well, that's a different case because, you know, in that case, you're 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 getting what you pay for. Uh, you're exactly getting what you pay for there. But here, you know, it's I mean. BGS and most, you know, authenticators that are out there are saying this card, if we're grading it, if we're giving it a number, if we're not saying that it's evidence of trimming, then we're saying it's, you know, not been trimmed. So what's the current status of the alt versus uh, Beckett case right now? So the motion to dismiss was just denied uh, recently. So uh, the case is really just beginning now. The court will uh, outline what the schedule is going to be. The parties will start exchanging documents. And, you know, hopefully within the next, you know, five to six months, we'll start seeing some filings from the parties better explaining uh, what 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 their side of the case is. Uh, I think when it comes to a case like this, I think it's probably going to settle. I think it'll probably settle confidentially uh, and we won't get any future guidance. Uh, I hope it I hope it continues and I hope we do get a court ruling because I think this is an important issue that a lot of people are, are, are actually watching, especially uh, grading companies as to what they can say and what they can get away with. All right. Interesting. Well, maybe, maybe we'll find something that would certainly be interesting. All right. We are in overtime. We're over the two hour mark. We're going to keep going for a little bit, Paul, sure. maybe another eight or nine minutes. Yeah. Uh, U.S. Sports Card says, Paul, what percentage of judges would laugh at the idea of a sports card lawsuit taking up valuable court time? I'd say very few. 
because you know there, there's a, a recognition now that uh, sports cards are big business. Uh, I mean, is this a lawsuit over a 33 cent card? That's a little bit different. But when you're talking about, mil- I mean, just you know, interchange card for widget. I mean, this is you know a lawsuit over a hundred thousand dollar widget or a two million dollar widget. It really it's doesn't almost, matter what it is. It's still it, it's almost like what if there was a a copyright infringement case on you know, the Little Mermaid or, or some some movie. I mean, it's still for kids, but it's big business still. Like, yeah, I, I think I think that's, uh, listen, again, not a lawyer, but that certainly seems to be um, my thoughts as well. Mookie Chilson says, Paul is a person who trims a card and then submits a card to a grading company without disclosing the trimming, breaking a law. I, I don't know uh, about that, but uh, it would seem to me that uh, the... And I don't know what the uh, grading company's contracts say. Uh, if they, if you have to allege that you know the card that you're submitting to the best of your knowledge hasn't been trimmed, uh, that would to me seem to be a smart thing for the companies to do if they don't already do that. In which case, you'd be breaching the contract. Uh, but as to um, is simply submitting a card that you've trimmed to the grading company. I'd have to think about that one a little bit because I mean I I could see that because I mean what's the ultimate intent? The intent there is potentially to, to defraud somebody. Why else would you be doing trimming it and then submitting it? So uh, yeah. uh, it how about this? I'll give you the typical lawyer answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, very helpful, Paul. So, but it seems like it, it seems like it could be it, it could be break it could be breaking a law. You're looking to. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, mean, I think, you know, just and, and, and again, don't hold me to this because I haven't done you know, too much research on it. But I think, you know, if you're submitting a trimmed card to a grading company uh, and a grading companies do not uh, slab trimmed cards, uh, I think, you know, the only reason you're doing it is to defraud. Uh, so unless you're disclosing that it's trimmed and you yeah. want to get the A for authentic or A for authentic. But yeah. Um, yeah. No, no easy answer for this one just yet. I need a specific, I need a specific hype uh, I, example of this. I gotta say though, Paul, I like that answer because it does give me faith that it is fraud. That it is, it could be looked at as fraud in a court because of what you just said. Intention grading companies aren't. They say they don't grade trimmed cards. Some get through. Submitters know this. They're you know especially if there's a history there of, of you know examples of that or evidence there are such that that this person tries to do that i mean i think it might be could be more of a slam dunk than not but bob's big boy says trimming isn't illegal it's just against the code that that i agree with it's not there's nothing illegal about you can trim your card if you want kids do kids do it all the time i mean i used to cut my cards so they would fit together you know back in the 80s when they're before i ever had a beckett there was no value associated with it it was just to make them look better who needs that extra white space around there, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, but but it is bad and potentially illegal when you then want to go sell that to somebody and not uh, disclose what you have done. Exactly. Um, okay. I think uh, I'm sort of scanning the rest of these comments. Looks like just some conversation here between the people out there. Uh, Bill here says, is Paul still working on a book showcasing hobby lawsuits and will the cases discussed tonight make it into volume two? So that's kind of been shelved a little bit. That was, you know, part of what I wanted to uh, do in 2023 is I wanted to put together a comprehensive uh, book covering uh, lawsuits that are uh, in the hobby. 
but uh, it became uh, a rather formidable task uh, with not uh, as many people uh, willing to go on the record uh, as, as, I, as I would like. So uh, mm. it's still something I was hoping to get that done this year. It's not going to get done this year. Uh, uh, hopefully in the foreseeable future it will be. But no, it's not as quickly. It's not as easy to do as I thought it would have been to do. And Justin Wickeiser here says, you cannot knowingly submit a trimmed card to a grading company. I'm adding that myself because it violates the contract. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that's what Justin is implying or telling us is that it's in part of the terms and conditions that you sign off on when you do make a submission to a grading company. I think it's wonderful that they have that in there, but not everybody adheres to the terms and conditions, apparently. Bob's Big Boy Ben says, no card trimmers have been locked up for trimming cards. I mean, that's a pretty absolute statement there. I don't know. Do do you have any insight, Paul? Can you verify or say, well, how would we know even? I, I'd point to Bill Mastro. <laughs> I, think, I think you do have somebody who was uh, put in jail. Uh, I don't remember. I, that was a little bit ago. But remember, uh, Bill Mastro was the one that was accused of uh, trimming a uh, Honus Wagner. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, you know, I think there was other allegations uh, of what was going on there, uh, you know, tampering with uh, you know, other things. So I'm not exactly sure why he was sentenced, uh, but yeah. it was at least allegations that were in that case. I heard of uh, he had an auction house. I, I believe there was some shill bidding going on, maybe wire fraud, something like that. Yeah, there, there was. If- yeah, there were so many issues. And there were so many issues in that case, you know, and I think there was a plea that was given. So I don't know if you could, you know, what you could point to as a reason there. But there were allegations that the uh, Honus Wagner was trimmed by him. So, yeah, well, he admitted it later. Uh, and, you know, PSA still to this day knows that that card was trimmed, but I don't believe they've delisted it from their po- They've delisted other cards from their population report or decertified them, but they haven't for some reason decertified that card. Isn't it number one? I think it's, it's, their, it's the number one. You, you number look pretty one. bad if you do that. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's, it's the number one. It's the first card that they ever that they ever graded and slabbed. It's well, it's widely known and accepted that it, it is trimmed, but I mean, I'm just curious, like if, 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 if any grading company will decertify certain cards because it's later shown that those cards are, I once bought a fake card online and it got, it was then brought to my attention. The card was fake. I sent it back to PSA and they, they paid me out through their guarantee program and decertified the card because it was a, it was a, it was a counterfeit I forget the year, but it was a Michael Jordan, Fleer, uh, uh, gold, platinum medallion. Michael Jordan, Fleer Ultra, platinum medallion. It was a counterfeited card. Bought it online, bought it on eBay, and um, I had it listed for sale on the PWCC marketplace. And somebody who was shopping on that marketplace sent PWCC a message saying, your card, that card on your marketplace is, is fraudulent, is counterfeit. PWCC contacts me right away, says, hey, we just were alerted that your card might be <laughs> counterfeit. We, we want your permission to send it to PSA for another opinion. I said, of course. They sent it to PSA. Then PSA got back to me and said, we've determined that your card is fraudulent. We'd like to offer you this much money for that card. So the card was ultimately decertified. Mm-hmm. Why have why wouldn't they have decertified that Honus Wagner number one, the first card that they've ever certified? If they're willing to certify my rinky dink Michael Jordan card, and it wasn't rinky, it wasn't five figures, I'll tell you that. It was under five figures, but it was also over four, or it was it was four figures, but not over five. 
why would they be why would they be consistent with that i think uh and again i don't know exactly what their standards are but uh you do see uh you know looking i've been looking to try and add a t206 ty cobb uh to my collection and you do see quite a few uh authentic cards with evidence of trimming uh they will say that on on, on the slabs themselves so maybe they're not going to decertify it because okay maybe it's not worth the three or the four and a half or whatever the grade was but they would still give it an a for authentic but with evidence of trimming maybe because of that it's more of, you know, maybe that's why they're keeping it there, but I, I, I wouldn't know if that's keeping with their, I mean, again, I think the number one motivation is it's the number one card we graded. It's the first thing we did. It's our flagship out there. We're not going to take it off. That looks bad. <laughs> well, it is bad, but yeah. I mean, but here Bob's big boy tells us that they changed the Honus to altered. So that means that there shouldn't be a PSA eight Honus Wagner on the, on the population report anymore. There should be minus one eight plus one a for uh altered or authentic altered yeah okay if they did that awesome like kudos to them because that's what it should be it's not an you know it's it's not a legitimate card justin wickeiser says that shilling is what got mastro uh the time he says he goes a fact he wrote an article about how he trimmed the card so that's it's just known that they that that's done uh dave snyder hello hope you are well as well um, okay, Paul, listen, we're we're way over time here, but there was one other case I wanted to, to bring up with you because you have the cards handy from it. So um, this is the, I is, is this the, which one is this? Stat Smashers? Yes, yes. Stat Smashers litigation, it's Panini versus what? Oh, for, uh, Wild no, so, Card, Tell, explain what's going on here. Sure, so... Uh the uh the old wild card the wild card that ended up uh going bankrupt used to have a uh stat smash used to have a uh insert called stat smashers uh but uh and uh, i think it was in the 90s uh that that this card was out there but the uh, old wild card went uh out of business and uh, declared bankruptcy uh jumped to 2021 and uh panini inserts uh, uh cards into its uh uh one of its products and they are stat smasher cards and you know I think uh, you've got a Jeremy. You've got a better uh, image than than what I'll show here, but uh, perfect. Yeah. So those are uh, the cards. So you know, looking at those cards, knowing nothing else, do you think that those cards are made by the same company? I mean, the Stat Smashers look the same. The purple lines look the same. I mean, heck, they're both Joe Montana cards, and Joe Montana's even in the same position. Well, so this. Uh, this, yeah, this uh, this lightning looking. Uh, the way the the, the 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 these bars come off the left side and then they come up on that same angle yeah yeah i mean and the backs the, the backs uh, the backs are the too yeah the so the exact same yeah so uh you know you could tell that you know panini's probably reasoning for this was a hey, wild card went out of business any intellectual property that they had on this disappeared so we're free to make these cards well, lo and behold, the bankruptcy trustee of the uh, old wildcard ends up suing them for copyright infringement. And uh, so this case has been going on for quite a while, but it is ready for trial. It is going to trial in September. And it is the case that I am watching with the most interest right now. Uh, for one reason, it's because what uh, degree is, you know, part of Panini's defense, which I think is a you know bad one for the industry. And I think it, well, I think it's a loser defense is that uh, card design shouldn't get as much protection uh, as you think it should. 
so, you know, if you wanted to, you know, there's only so many ways you can design a card. You're going to run out of ways to design cards at some point. So you really shouldn't protect card design. Uh, I think they're going to lose on that. I mean, as looking at those cards, I mean, it's it's really clear that, you know, they copied almost the exact same thing uh, that's there. Uh, so it'll be, uh, you know, an interesting one. The other argue, the other defense they have is, you know, we think the intellectual property uh, just died uh, on the vine. Uh, the court has chimed in and said that uh, it doesn't believe that the intellectual property, it thinks the intellectual property is still valid and still out there. So we'll see what happens. I think uh, Panini should really settle that case. I think they're going to get killed in court. I used to, uh, I, I do a lot of intellectual property cases and we would do uh, uh, mock trials. And when we did mock trials in cases where you have a little guy whose IP got ripped off by the big guy, the jury just went crazy in favor of the little guy. I mean, a total David and Goliath type situation. Uh, and it never works out well for the defendants. So uh, we'll see what happens. I hope it goes to trial. I hope it doesn't settle on the courthouse steps. It probably will. And if it goes to trial, I may be getting myself a, a, a ticket down to Dallas, and uh, you may see me in the uh, in the cheap seats there. Let's see the cards that you have from. So you have the cards that I just showed, I believe. I'm going to put the spotlight on you here to make them yeah. make it a bit bigger. So I do have the actual in here. I have a, a Kittle. Uh, 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 card from Panini, but I do have the Montana uh, also to do that side-by-side -side comparison, the exact same one that is um, uh, in the complaint, but it's slabbed. <laughs> and there's this part of me that even though I want to break open the slab to put it in my frame so we have that perfect side-by-side, -side, um, I just, I can't, I can't bring myself to breaking the slab. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. All right. Well, listen, we're, uh, we're 15 minutes into overtime here. This has been great, Paul. Like you said at the top of the show, it's, it's these when you, when you come on with me, it's the fastest two hours ever. This does not feel like we've been going for two hours and 15 minutes, but we have covered a lot of ground, a lot of interesting stuff. So uh, I'm going to just let to the chat, everybody, you know, we're wrapping up. So if you want to get any final comments in, please get them in really quick because we're going to wrap this up. So I want to thank the chat. You guys were awesome as always tonight. Uh, Great questions, great commentary, and I want to thank everybody who 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 provided us additional facts on certain things out there, uh, certain issues. Really, really helpful uh, to me when you guys do that, and I'm sure to to Paul as well tonight. Uh, thank you, Dan's Vintage, absolutely great show. Who says lawyers aren't likable guys, right? <laughs> for sure. Thank you, Justin, for your comment there. Oh, and listen. I'm going to be at the Anaheim show, sorry, the Burbank show in Anaheim at the end of the month on August 31st. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there. If, if I do, say hello. Um, I'm not going to be wearing a jersey for you to sign like Paul did, but definitely say hello. Always love to see people at the show. Paul, I want to thank you for coming back. We, we, will, we will make sure we do this again. We will not wait almost two and a half years again. We will, you know, maybe try to make this at least annual because uh, you're always just so much fun to talk to and you bring so much great information. So thank you so much for joining tonight. No, thanks for having me on again. I mean, it's, I, I can't believe we've been doing this for two hours and 15 minutes. It feels like it's been 40. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's gone fast. <laughs> I know it goes so fast. Final comment from Mookie Chilson says, Paul, read the lawsuits on camera with your thoughts as you go. You're reading them anyway. Quick, easy, maybe and YouTube would devour it. Thanks for the fun show. Appreciate that Mookie. And uh, all right. Well, guys, with that, with that, I'm just going to I'm just going to end this now. Paul, thank you so much. Hang tight. Everybody else. Again, thanks for joining. Have a great rest of your weekend and the week ahead. We'll see you back here next Saturday. 
And with that, this episode of Sports Cards Live is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.